Such sights to show you. Bring the motherfucking ruckus! Fuck you too! You'll get it, you'll get it. The, the process is about getting there. It's not a, it's the, it's about the journey. the journey. It's not about the destination. I love it. <laughs> Actually, I, I vehemently hate that saying. Can I, <laughs> can I just say that? <laughs> can I say that I just genuinely don't like that saying? I disagree with it because if you don't care about where the fuck you're gonna end up. Why the why fuck would you care about? Why the fuck would you even care about the journey? Exactly. Um, that's for all you One Piece fans out there. Uh, <laughs> if you think the ending is in any way going to mean anything to anyone, ever, uh, you might want to reanalyze what it is you've been watching for the past <laughs> twenty fucking years. Um, yeah, podcasting. Uh, there she goes. Secret guest. Bye, Dave. And uh, the. This this is an interesting one for me because uh, recently I told you I reminded you in the office because you always mm -hmm. talk you always tell me what you're listening to right you always let me know what episode you're on right you're very you're very open and I appreciate it because I always like to keep tabs on the people that that are vocal about listening right I like to hear their opinions yeah and it's. It's not like I'm going to have you sit down here and I'm going to fucking test you. I'm going to be like... I'm gonna <laughs> I hope like, not because my memory what's is your, shit. What's your, but like, if I ask you, because you've been listening to yeah. it for a while now, yeah. like, what what has stood out to you the most? What do you... what Which which story did you like the most out of everything you've listened to thus far? Because you're, you're more than halfway through. Yeah. So I like um, Pen Pal. Mm -hmm. And I think I told you, I'd listen to Pen Pal on, I think, No Sleep as well. It is very relevant to the stuff we are reading today. I see exactly why you would like a story like that. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it is very King-esque. It is King-esque. Um, it is real, it is supernatural, and it is personal yeah. in all the same ways his stories are. And it's about uh, uh, growing up. Yes. Which is, you know, a King The forte. shattering of the innocence. Absolutely. Um, I like, uh, Left Right Game was a good one. Fuck yeah, Left Right Game. Left Right Game. And, uh, I gotta say, I think I told you earlier today, um, this <laughs> Edith one. You recently listened to Edith's Memory. Yes. Which I read, I read that with Where Am I? Uh, yes, with Where Am I? Yeah. yeah. Where Am I? Yeah. Where Am I? <laughs> and it's because we... We had always wanted to read a story, yeah. but like about like a killer that has Alzheimer's, you know, like the idea of forgetting these atrocities that you've done, and there's this old woman who yeah. just fucking plays everyone. Correct. It's like, of course you're a serial killer pretending to have Alzheimer's yeah. to to lure people in. That's fucking. That's great. I I, I, really, I don't remember I really, what episode that was. It's been a long time. I but that's but one forty five. I know that because I listened to it. Yesterday. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, th this is this is my pulse check. I ask people what they think, and they tell me how they feel. And pe people on Reddit, people on Facebook, anyone who messages us anywhere, I usually read through all that stuff, and I and I try to see what we can do and what suggestions come in. Naturally, yeah. we get a lot of suggestions. Um. Yeah, we're not we're not doing suggestions today. the the person The person I'm sitting with today um, comes from a, a long history of really appreciating 
Stephen King, so naturally we're going to read Stephen King. Okay. I'm I'm allowed to because the book is for free online, <laughs> and you could <laughs> you could literally find the PDF uh, just by googling it. And I don't feel bad about taking money away from a billionaire, millionaire author, uh, <laughs> skeleton man. Um, I'm I love him. I love oh. him. I love him dearly. But I'm gonna read pages online from a book that came out 20 years ago and everyone's going to be okay with that 20 statement. i feel like it's a lot more than 20 it probably is <laughs> what what would you say just from knowing it better probably 30 40 early 80s so about yeah, 40 there. yeah yeah a long time yes i was alive you've been reading stephen king as long as you've been alive like like his first book came out when you were how old Oh my goodness! Uh, when was that Carrie? Carrie? Carrie is seventy. I want to say seventy-eight. If it's seventy-eight, I was two. Okay. Um, yeah. When did it's you somewhere. pick them up? When I was twelve years old. Okay, uh, ten years. Yeah, twelve years old. Um, I read The Talisman, and is a twelve-year-old boy, Jack Sawyer. I'm a twelve-year-old boy reading it, and it just caught my imagination. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, and then I graduated immediately to the stand. Wow, what a fucking jump. <laughs> yeah, it's a hell of a jump. What a fucking jump. Yeah, I'm jump. I'm notorious for saying that I don't like the stand too much. Yeah, I, I get it. It's okay. I mean, it's okay. I'm not saying I dislike it. I'm right. just saying there are other things of his that I like. And when I tell you, which you already know what my favorite Stephen King book is, like, it doesn't surprise you. Yeah. Well, I just appreciate one that is well-written and has a great conclusion. Right. Like... You and I share that as our favorite. Oh, okay. 11, 22, 63. Yep, that's it. Naturally. That is my favorite as if, well. If I had a dream for where this show is at in, like, 10 years, I'm doing that entire book. Oh, boy. What is that? Like a 20 it's, episode? It's probably going to be 20 episodes. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. I wouldn't do it with like any other book though. And yeah. the thing is the thing is we're gonna push a boundary at some point of of doing something that's longer than I think five episodes is yeah. our longest, which I think is what Brasco. I think so, yeah. I believe we did we did the first story in three parts mm -hmm. and then the sequel series was an additional two, I believe. Um, but they were spread out between multiple months. People right. didn't tell me there was a sequel to it until right when it came out and I, I read it it was one of the first relevant things i read on the show yeah. um yeah uh when when it comes to what we're reading today to be more specific this is night shift night shift night shift and i just want to make that distinction because there is also graveyard shift uh skeleton crew uh is his next one graveyard shift is a story in skeleton crew Fair enough. Okay, so I did I did mix that up. No, but I've I've told you like in yeah. my in my previous job, I just listened to everything that was out. Sure. That that was Stephen King audiobook, yeah. uh, and I got I got caught up on everything he had written from inception to I think two thousand fifteen. Right. And then I stopped working at that job and naturally fell off. Yeah. And the first thing I picked up after I actually picked up a book to read it, to go through it, was Joyland. And wow. I liked it I liked it just enough to be like, I'll do this again at some point, but I haven't been super active hmm. about stuff he did recently. Gotcha. I missed the short story collections uh, in that audiobook 
uh, track down because the stuff I was going after were long form. This is going to soak up a lot of my work day. This right. is a 20 to 30 hour story. Right. Um, well, you missed some great shit because, uh, oh, I'm, I know, I know because, are, are... because we have recorded two other short story oh, episodes good. before. Awesome. You probably just haven't gotten, haven't to, gotten to those yet. yet. No. Um, it's, I think it's post 200. So that explains why okay. the, the first one was like 217 and the next one was like 240 something. Okay. Um, we only did them in the recent last two years. Okay. Um, we did, um, no, it's 213 and it's, no, it was 113. And you did listen to one oh, of I did them. Listen it was to, the, oh, the, it was jaunt. the jaunt. Yes. Love it that It was story. the jaunt with Disco D. We, we had, he really wanted to read something. And when I had told him that I hadn't read that before, he said, we're stopping what we're doing. We're reading it right now. Yeah. And it's happening. And I appreciate the shit out of that. Um, cause that was a phenomenal reading experience for yeah. me. I, I really love that. And then, uh, Scutch caught wind that I was reading, um, Stephen King stuff on the show. Cause he yeah. listens every once in a while. He saw the name come up and he said, we're doing King the next time you come up. Yes. And I said, what do you want to do? He said, surprise me. Uh, we read, uh, the raft. Oh, the raft's a good one too. Cause it's my favorite, uh, creep, creep show, show. two yeah, yeah, yeah. clip in that trilogy yeah, um, yeah, yeah. for that sequel that's a good one too so i've read the jaunt and i've read the raft yeah um and i love the shit out of both of them but i also notoriously love stephen king i just yeah. i haven't caught up on relevant stephen king and the gotcha. more people tell me about contemporary stephen king is that it's eh yeah he's not he's there definitely... was a stride that was hit yeah 20 years ago and it hasn't quite been there for a while every once in a while lightning strikes and gives you something good yeah but it's it tends to be his collaborations and his collaborations are great um he does good stuff with with his kids for sure that's exactly what i was uh, gonna say sleeping but, beauties but I also really yeah um he did fairy tale i can't remember if that was a collaboration or not but i really kind of enjoyed that i believe it was um yeah i can't i i, I think that's right but but I, i'm not don't remember certain. who who but, did he did? Uh, who who did he did? Uh, <laughs> who did he did black uh, black house with? Peter Strom. Peter Strom, right? Okay. Yeah, um, that's he wrote the talisman with, with Peter Strom as well. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, Peter Strom is very good as well. I, I enjoy him. Ghost Story is a fantastic. I gotta book. I gotta check his, if he's ever done anything with like Ted Decker before because I like Ted. Who Stephen King? Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. I feel like they would do something fun at some point, but yeah. maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's maybe Ted's religion would throw them off. Could be. Could be. Uh, yeah, just uh, his most recent one. I've told you about this, Holly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, not. And I know the character Holly. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. When I said that I haven't read anything, I don't mean that I'm removed from the stuff sure. he's doing. I just mean that I haven't sat down and read them yet. Sure. Like, I I know a lot about the Outsider because I watched the show and I yeah. and I looked up facts to make sure that they were adapted a certain way yeah. but you know yeah um outsider was good i enjoyed that the outsider the new one holly um it's good but it's like three quarters of the book is like uh covid like pro vax you like, did tell me like it's like what like there's like literally a page of it is like 
Well, what vaccination vaccine did you get? Oh, I got Moderna. What did you get? Oh, I got Johnson and Johnson. Great. Well, we're both vaxxed. Awesome. And then it's like, and then and then we'll move on to the relevant part of the scene. So, and neither of us are people that are saying they disagree with with the vaccination no, standpoint. I'm, I'm vaxxed we're just to the saying, eyelids. <laughs> we're just saying. What the fuck, Stephen <laughs> right. King? It takes you completely out of the narrative. What the fuck are you doing, like, Stephen? Like, I get it. I'm with you, man. But, like... But what are you doing? Every page, do I need it to be hit over the head with it? I don't. No. Yeah. Um, but it was still good. It was, it was still fairly satisfying at the end. So. I'll, um, I'll get back into it at some point. Out of all of his most recent stuff, what would you say the best has been? Fairy tale. Fairy tale. All right. Fairy tale. Out. Check it out. Um, I'll make an effort to pick that up. I've been I've been crunching through all of Mark Miller's stuff. Sure. And it's because I really want to read Big Game, which I think finished last week. Ah. Uh, it's the twenty year culmination piece where all of his characters fight to the death. Nice. In a five issue series. Oh wow. So you got Kick Ass up against Nemesis. Oh Jesus. Up against fucking uh, Super Crooks and Jupiter's Legacy and. And Starlight. I thought of you when I read Starlight, actually. I was like, Starlight's fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, I'll check it out. Uh, Starlight is... Um, the basic plot is... Uh, imagine uh, Flash uh, Gordon happened. Okay. And then he came back to Earth, and then he lived like a regular, normal fucking life. And no one believed him that Flash Gordon <laughs> happened. <laughs> Okay. Mark Miller writes Starlight. I'm in. I know, I know, because I thought of you because I know you like Flash Gordon. So, Flash Gordon. so uh so one day, you know, his his kid his his wife dies. Uh-huh. He's sixty he's sixty five and he goes, What the fuck am I gonna do with the rest of my life? Yeah. And he's like, My kids won't even come over for the holidays. They didn't remember the the mother's funeral, uh, you know, the mother's anniversary of her, her death. Right. You know, these kids don't fucking understand me anymore. What the fuck am I doing with my life? I'm so alone. And an alien person lands on his front lawn and says, Flash, you must save us. (laughs) And he gets drawn back into doing a a Flash Gordon-esque adventure. And Mm. he immediately jumps right fucking into it. Like, he he owns every situation. He says the quips. He says the lines. He gets the beat back. And it's just, it's fantastic. It is, I, I cannot, I cannot stress my anticipation for the live action adaptations of, I think, Nemesis and Super Crooks. I'm sad Jupiter's Legacy bombed on Netflix. My, my opinion, having read all of Jupiter's Legacy, it deserved to bomb because they did (laughs) not do... They did too much stuff from Volume 2 and not enough stuff from Volume 1, and Volume 1 is where the goods are at. Right. They basically, if I were to compare it to anything, I'd say it's like Star Wars, except the prequels came out first. Okay. Would that have hooked you enough to, to get through an eventuality of A New Hope? Back then, no. The answer is no. <laughs> That's why Lucas did A New Hope through, right. through Return of the Jedi. Um, Jupiter's Legacy for Netflix, they did... They did the prequels, and no one no one knows why to care about these characters yet because they haven't fought each other to the death gotcha. yet. And that's what the original book is about. Gotcha. So then you go back and you learn how they got their powers and all this other stuff. That doesn't you don't give a fuck <laughs> when they're cheating on each other and having affairs and killing each other and right. it's the Justice League just fucking annihilating each other. Yeah. And that's what it should have been, which is why Netflix wasn't gonna do it right uh, to begin with. But anyway, Mark Miller, big fan. Crunching through all his stuff. Um, cool. 
I actually think I'm on, I'm on Huck next, and I'm very excited to read Huck because okay. I've I've liked a lot of I liked almost everything I've read so far, uh, except I've I, I I deeply disliked the unfunnies, and I know I'm not afraid to say that because it's meant to be disliked. Um, <laughs> it just has every every trigger word. Uh, phrase, uh, racism, misogynistic comment. Mm. It could violence. It does everything to push the actual fucking limit of what an old school comic strip could do. Right. And it's just about like rape and murder and death and drugs, except you're looking at Sesame Street characters and you're just like, you're just like, (laughs) I don't like this anymore. I don't, I don't actually want to get into this. I will say, Mark, you went a little too far there, (laughs) but you know, but you brought me back with kick-ass. So thank you for writing kick-ass. Um, nemesis is the greatest, uh, Batman film never adapted. Um, nemesis is if Batman was a serial killer, how do you, how do you hunt him down? Because he, he, parachutes onto the top of the Air Force One and kidnaps the president and threatens to kill him on live TV unless the world's greatest FBI detective hunts him down and stops him from doing it. Okay. And at one point, again, and I I feel like a broken record for saying this to you again, but Joe Carnahan was set to direct it for some studio, I want to say 10, 13 years ago, and it still hasn't fucking happened. Uh, um, Netflix, I think, got the rights back. Ago. They had to rewrite it because of the whole contract thing with yeah. the previous uh, owners. So they rewrote Nemesis just so they could release a Netflix version. And I'm like, Netflix does not have the budget to do no. Nemesis any jet. It's like a, you know, I might eat my words. It's like a Zack Snyder film going directly to Netflix. But now that I think about it, that is actually happening. So yeah, never mind. <laughs> I'm going to eat that statement and I'll say ne- Nemesis might be able to happen on Netflix. Do we I think it's going to be good though? No. No, probably not. No, it need needs a big budget. budget. It needs a big studio. It needs a good director. It needs it needs all of these things. Like, am I excited BioShock is getting adapted into a movie on Netflix? Yes, sure. ecstatic. I think they can do a great job. Why? Because I don't think BioShock actually needs a huge giant studio budget. They just need good CGI, good green screen equipment, mm-hmm. and good actors. As far as I'm aware, you got the guy to do who did Dark for yeah. Netflix to do Bioshock, and I I would be in love. Okay. Because that dude does theming and special effects and everything fucking fantastically. So, and they got the guy who did Hunger Games. Okay. And he's doing it for Netflix. I think it, it has the potential to be pretty good. Bioshock's my favorite game like ever made. Right. It needs to happen. Do you know Bioshock? I'm aware. I'm familiar with the title. I don't know. Anything I should give you. I should give you it. the book. You would. You would find the book so fucking interesting because they just explain the entire video game in the book. All right. Um, Do and it. You, and you would probably consume it a lot better in the written word. <laughs> I've also thought about reading that on the show because it's a very quick book. You could probably yeah. get through the entire thing in one sitting. Okay. Um, yeah, send it my way. It's I'll, fantastic. I'll, I'll check though. it out. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm high and I'm rambling. What, <laughs> what are we drinking? We are drinking. You uh, wanted to bring something in. You said I did. you said I've been listening for a while. I want to I want to commemorate the occasion. Absolutely. So this is a Pino Pino Noir finished bourbon from Eight Oaks Distillery, and it is fantastic in my opinion. The like I said pre-recording, the most interesting thing about it is that you can taste the wine. You can. In the bourbon, yeah. and with with an ice cube, it is heavenly. It is. It is really delightful. smooth. 
this is this was a wonderful, wonderful suggestion. Um, I'm glad you enjoy it. And then I also did like seven bong rips. <laughs> so I told myself I needed to get into this, and I am I am now hashtag in it. <coughs> Pardon me. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, no, I'm just saying that I am. I am no, now. Good. I am hashtag in this. I, I'm I'm glad because you look very relaxed. Well, today, to today was a very stressful day. It was a stressful day. We don't day. need to talk about where no. our relationship comes from. Right. Today was a very stressful day. But it was stressful. Yeah, um, I agree. So, uh, we we get to read Stephen King because we're both looking to uh, see what the King has been up to and also get back to seeing what the King was up to. Yeah. And just kind of seeing some, seeing some good stuff. Just reading some good stuff. There's no, there's no balancing act of wondering whether or not this is going to be garbage. That's true. Everyone can listen comfortably, knowing that we are just going to narrate and discuss and possibly joke about uh, Stephen King. Absolutely. So if you like to listen to Stephen King, if you like to read Stephen King, this is an episode for you. None of this should be a fucking surprise, because as I already mentioned, we've done this two other times. <laughs> this is the first time where we're, we're going to be doing, like, smaller stories. Right. Um, the other ones were longer stories, but uh, that that shouldn't change any of this. In fact, it'll give us more time to talk about how we feel about them, which I can appreciate because you know we're gonna go some places and opinions are going to be shared so we need to have the time to uh discuss uh yes in my head this is a this is a battle to see which of them is the best okay good um that's usually how i treat uh a bottle a bottle episode where we read multiple stories which one of these am i going to like the most and right now just based on the list i think i'm going to like the ledge the The most they're they're all really fantastic in my opinion. Um, I do have a. I'm, I let I'm, him curate the episode, folks. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold I'm gonna reserve my prediction as to which one you like the best for the end. I want to see if it matches up. I'm not a cheater, so I, I'll be honest. I think I know in my head just going into it which one you're gonna like the best. Is it not the ledge? It, they're all in contention. We're gonna see. Yeah, nah. It's you're saying it's not the. Ledge. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, I I realized <laughs> I haven't introduced you at all, and we've been talking for twenty minutes. That's all right. Uh, as it happens, as I mentioned, the seven bong rips. Uh, how do I even say it? What's what's the what's the what's the reason? What's your perceived reason for why I wanted to name you this? Well, I believe it's an outside of the uh, universe of this podcast. It's a nickname that I that I use outside of this. Mm. I think which it's leads. another it's another way of saying uh, your nickname, which is the only thing I'll ever call you. Right. Because right, I right, don't right. call you your actual name. <laughs> Few I people re- do. <laughs> I refuse to. Other people can. I don't want to. No, it's all good. Uh, I found I guess I did find a big way to kind of turn that on its head and say it a different way. Yeah. Um, that's that's fair. I also just I take you as an auteur. Oh. And. And as someone with a, a good opinion on a majority of things, uh, what is it? Some fucking surprise that I respect your opinion. <laughs> I just said that. No, I don't know if it's a surprise, but that's very nice of you to say. I feel, uh, feel very uh, honored that the captain 
uh, finds my opinions uh, to be relevant. I, I, I appreciate your opinion. That's great. Uh, m- much how I like, I like to just talk about Scutch McGee. We just like to talk about things sometimes. Right. That's just how I appreciate the opinions of few. <laughs> so we will, <laughs> we will discuss that exact topic. Uh, the, the name for everyone who will immediately know what it's referencing uh, is Royale with Cheese. Royale with Cheese. And uh, yeah. the the reason it's a a Royale with Cheese is because of, of course, Pulp Fiction and <laughs> uh, the wonderful Samuel Jackson's yeah. line talking about the burger that they're eating. <laughs> and John Travolta gets back to him, you know, do you know what they call... Uh, a burger in France. <laughs> oh no, a quarter powder with cheese. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, it's a quarter, it's a quarter yeah, powder with cheese. That you know what I call a quarter powder with cheese in France? A royale with and he cheese. He says royale with cheese and he says royale with cheese. <laughs> I like that. I like that. And I just, in my head, I'm just like, yeah, that name. <laughs> that, name <laughs> that name, that name works for this guy. Works for me. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Royale with cheese, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're, are you a Quentin Tarantino lover? Absolutely. I just, I just assumed you were. I love, I love Tarantino. I just assumed you were, you, because you, like you I said, correctly. you have a good opinion of many things. Yeah. I would not have been surprised love. to learn that exact fact. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Pulp Fiction, Pulp Fiction's really fucking good. That's I'm, really good. I I am I personally hold Inglorious Bastards to the highest regard of all things he's ever made. It's fantastic. But that's because of my opinion of how things should be made. <laughs> um, okay. And then after that is probably just like the Kill Bills. Kill Bills, Jackie Brown, man. Jackie Brown's great. Don't sleep on Jackie Brown. Jackie, Jackie Brown is Brown. great. I'm not saying Jackie Brown's not last for me. Okay, well that's all good. right. That's good. But. You know, there's a lot of stuff before Jack. There's a lot. Well, there's a he. It's all. It's all good. Like there's there's a few, few stinkers. I can't really think of one that I'm like, eh. I don't hate anything he's ever made. Right. I just there are some of them I don't care about as much. Like everyone really likes Django Unchained. Yeah. Not a huge don't could could go other ways with Django okay. Unchained. Okay. I'll put a Pulp Fiction. I'll put oh, a, sure. a Reservoir Dogs. I'll put a yep. a Kill Bill before I put. Uh, yeah. Before I put Django Unchained in there, yeah. but, but you know, that's just personal preference. <sighs> All right, we're gonna read some fucking stories now. Hell yeah! Or else I won't be able to read some fucking stories. <laughs> All right, Mister Renshaw, the desk's already fucked up. Let's take it. Let's take a drink. Oh, by the way, this is battleground. <laughs> Mr. Renshaw, the desk clerk's voice caught him halfway to the elevator, and Renshaw turned back impatiently, shifting his flight back from one hand to the other. The envelope in his the envelope, <laughs> the envelope in his coat pocket, stuffed with twenties and fifties, cracked heavily. The job had gone well, and the pay had been excellent, even after the organization's fifteen percent finder's fee had been skimmed off the top. Now all he wanted was a hot shower and a gin and tonic and sleep. What is it? 
give me your Renshaw. Is he, is he supposed to? All right. How's he supposed? What do you think? Put yourself. I said a bunch of fragments. What is it? There we go. Package, sir. Would you sign the slip? Renshaw signed and looked thoughtfully at the rectangular package. His name and the building's address were written on the gummed label in a spiky backhand script that seemed familiar. He rocked the package on the imitation marble surface of the desk, and something clanked faintly inside. Should I have it sent up, Mr. Renshaw? No, I've got it. It was about 18 inches on a side and fitted clumsily under his arm. He put it on the plush carpet that covered the elevator floor and twisted his key in the penthouse slot above the regular rack of buttons. The car rose smoothly and silently. He closed his eyes and let the job replay itself on the dark screen of his mind. First, as always, a call from Cal Bates. You available, Johnny? He was available twice a year. Minimum fee, $10,000. He was very good very reliable, but what his customers really paid for was the infallible predator's talent. John Renshaw was a human hawk, constructed by both genetics and environment to do two things superbly, kill and survive. After Bates's call, a buff-colored envelope <laughs> appeared in Renshaw's box. A name and address, a photograph, all committed to memory then down the garbage disposal with the ashes of the envelope and contents. I was struggling with that word. Seven bong rips. <laughs> this time, the face had been that of a sallow Miami businessman named Hans Morris. <laughs> I hope you get to read for Hans. <laughs> Founder and owner of the Morris Toy Company. Someone had wanted Morris out of the way and had gone to the organization. The organization, in the person of Calvin Bates, had talked to John Renshaw. Pow! What in the kisser? <laughs> Mourners, please omit flowers. The door slid open. He picked up his package and stepped out. He unlocked the suite and stepped in. Oh, no. No Hans. No Hans. <laughs> this yeah, time, no Hans. <laughs> no Hans. At this, that's what I say when I ride a bike down the hill. <laughs> At this, <laughs> only the lame jokes work with you. I'm listen. I laugh at everything. You know this. At this time of day, just after three p.m., the spacious living room was splashed with April sunshine. He paused for a moment, enjoying it, then put the package on the end table by the door and loosened his tie. He dropped the envelope on top of it and walked over to the terrace. He pushed open the sliding glass door and stepped out. It was cold, and the wind knifed through his thin top coat. Yet he paused a moment, looking over the city the way a general might survey a captured country. Traffic crawled, beetle-like in the streets. Far away, almost buried in the golden afternoon haze, the Bay Bridge glittered like a madman's mirage. To the east, all but lost behind the downtown high-rises, the crammed and dirty tenements with their stainless steel forests of TV aerials, it was better up here. Better than in the gutters. He went back inside, slid the door closed, and went into the bathroom for a long, hot shower. When he sat down 40 minutes later to regard his package, not his dick, drink <laughs> in hand, the shadows had marched halfway across the wine-colored carpet, and the best of the afternoon was past. It was a bomb. <laughs> <laughs>
Of course it wasn't, but one proceeded as if it were. That's why one had remained upright and taking nourishment while so many others had gone to that great unemployment office in the sky. If it was a bomb, it was clockless. It sat utterly silent, bland and enigmatic. Plastique was more likely these days anyway, less temperamental than the clock springs manufactured by West Clocks and Big Ben. Renshaw looked at the postmark. Miami, April 15, five days ago, so the bomb was not time-set. It would have gone off in the hotel safe in that case. Miami, yes, and that spiky backhand writing. There had been a framed photograph on the sallow businessman's desk. The photo had been of an even sallower old crone wearing a babushka. The script slanted across the bottom had read, Best from your number one idea, girl, Mom. What kind of a number one idea is this, Mom? A do-it-yourself extermination kit? Kind of. He regarded the package with complete concentration, not moving his hands folded. Extraneous questions, such as how Morse's number one idea girl might have discovered his address, did not occur to him. They were for later, for Cal Bates. Unimportant now. With a sudden, almost absent move, he took a small celluloid calendar out of his wallet and inserted it deftly under the twine that crisscrossed the brown paper. He slid it under the scotch tape that held one end flap. The flap came loose, relaxing against the twine. He paused for a time, observing, then leaned close and sniffed cardboard paper string, nothing more. He walked around the box, squatted easily on his haunches, and repeated the process. Twilight was invading his apartment with gray, shadowy figures. One of the flaps popped free of the restraining twine, showing a dull green box beneath. Metal. Hinged. He produced a pocket knife and cut the twine. It fell away, and a few helping prods with the tip of the knife revealed the box. It was green with black markings, and stenciled on the front in white letters were the words G.I. Joe Vietnam Foot Locker. Below that, 20 infantrymen, 10 helicopters, 2 BAR men, 2 bazooka men, 2 medics, 4 jeeps. Below that, a flag decal. Below that, in the corner, Morris Toy Company, Miami, Florida. He reached out to touch it, then withdrew his hand. Something inside the footlocker had moved. Renshaw stood up, not hurrying, and backed across the room toward the kitchen and the hall. He snapped on the lights. The Vietnam footlocker was rocking, making the paper brown... Dyslexia? The brown paper beneath it rattle. It suddenly overbalanced and fell to the carpet with a soft thud, landing on one end. The hinged top opened a crack of perhaps two inches. Tiny foot soldiers, about an inch and a half tall, began to crawl out. Renshaw watched them, unblinking. His mind made no effort to cope with the real or unreal aspect of what he was seeing, only with the possible consequences for his survival. The soldiers were wearing minuscule army fatigues, helmets, and field packs. Tiny carbines were slung across their shoulders. Two of them looked briefly across the room at Renshaw. Their eyes, no bigger than pencil points, glittered. Five, ten, twelve... Then all twenty. One of them was gesturing, ordering the others. They lined themselves up along the crack that the fall had produced and began to push. 
The crack began to widen. Renshaw picked one of the large pillows off the couch and began to walk toward them. The commanding officer turned and gestured. The others whirled and unslung their carbines. There were tiny, almost delicate popping sounds, and Renshaw felt suddenly as if he had been stung by bees. <laughs> he threw the pillow. It struck them, knocking them sprawling, then hit the box and knocked it wide open. Insect-like, with a faint high whirring noise like chiggers, a cloud of miniature helicopters painted jungle green rose out of the box. Tiny foot sounds reached Renshaw's ears, and he saw pinprick-sized muzzle flashes coming from the open copter doors. Needles pricked his belly, his right arm, the side of his neck. He clawed out and got one, suddenly pain in his fingers, blood welling. The world blades had chopped them to the bone in diagonal scarlet hash marks. The others whirled out of range, circling him like horseflies. The stricken copter thumped to the rug and lay still. Sudden, excruciating pain in his foot made him cry out. One of the foot soldiers was standing on his shoe and bayoneting his ankle. <laughs> the tiny face looked up, panting and grinning. Renshaw kicked at it, and the tiny body flew across the room to splatter on the wall. It did not leave blood, but a viscid, purple smear. There was a tiny coughing explosion, and blinding agony ripped his thigh. One of the bazooka men had come out of the footlocker. A small curl of smoke rose lazily from his weapon, and Renshaw looked down at his leg and saw a blackened, smoking hole in his pants the size of a quarter. The flesh beneath was charged. <laughs> the little bastard shot me! He turned and ran into the hall, then into his bedroom. One of the helicopters buzzed past his cheeks, blades whirring busily. The small stutter of a BAR, then it darted away. I don't know, I would have fun. <laughs> I would pick up a fucking baseball bat and go to town. I would well, live out all of my homicidal tendencies in that exact moment. So far, only a pillow. Yeah, no, like, I would have had one of my swords on the wall by now. <laughs> well, read on. The gun beneath his pillow was a forty-four Magnum, big enough to put a hole the size of two fists through anything it hit. Renshaw turned, holding the pistol in both hands, and he realized coolly that he would be shooting at a moving target not much bigger than a flying light bulb. Eh, still a <laughs> light bulb. Yeah, I mean... Two of the copters whirred in, sitting on the bed. Renshaw fired once. One of the helicopters exploded into nothingness. That's two, he thought. He drew a bead on the second, squeezed the trigger. It jaked! God damn it, it jaked! The helicopter swooped at him in a sudden, deadly arc. Fore and aft overhead props, whirring with blinding speed. Renshaw caught a glimpse of one of the BAR men crouched at the open bay door, firing his weapon in short, deadly bursts. And then he threw himself to the floor and rolled. My eyes. The bastard was going for my eyes. He came up on his back at the far wall the gun held at chest level, but the copter was retreating. It seemed to pause for a moment and dip in recognition of Renshaw's superior firepower. Then it was gone, back toward the living room. Renshaw got up, wincing at his weight came down on the wounded leg. It was bleeding freely, and why not, he thought grimly. It's not everybody who gets hit point-blank with a bazooka shell and lives to tell about it. So, 
mom was his number one idea girl, was she? She was all that and a bit more. He shook a pillowcase free of the tick and ripped it into a bandage for his leg, then took his shaving mirror from the bureau and went to the hallway door. Kneeling, he shoved it out onto the carpet at an angle and peered in. They were... <laughs> Bivalking? Bivalking? I, I don't know. <laughs> I'd feel like that's a typo. It could be. They were doing something by the <laughs> footlocker. Damned if they weren't. <laughs> Miniature soldiers run hither and thither, setting up tents. Jeeps two inches high raced about importantly. A medic was working over the shoulders Renshaw had kicked. The remain eight copters flew in a protective swarm overhead at coffee table level. Suddenly, they became aware of the mirror, and three of the foot soldiers dropped to one knee and began firing. Seconds later, the mirror shattered in four places. Okay, okay then. Renshaw went back to the bureau and got the heavy mahogany odds and ends box Linda had given him for Christmas. He hefted it once, nodded, and went to the doorway and lunged through. He wound up and fired like a pitch hitter throwing a fastball. The box described a swift, true vector and smashed little men like nine pins. One of the jeeps rolled over twice. Renshaw advanced to the doorway of the living room, sighted at one of the sprawling soldiers, and gave it to him. Several of the others had recovered. Some were kneeling and firing formally. Others had taken cover. Still others had retreated back into the footlocker. The bee stings began to pepper his legs and torso, but none reached higher than ribcage. Perhaps the range was too great. It didn't matter. He had no intention of being turned away. This was it. He missed with his next shot. They were so goddamn small. But the following one sent another soldier into a broken sprawl. The captors were buzzing toward him ferociously, now with tiny bullets beginning to splat into his face above and below his eyes. He potted the lead copter, then the second. Jagged streaks of pain silvered his vision. The remaining six split into two retreating wings. His face was wet with blood, and he swiped at it with his forearm. He was ready to start firing again when he paused. The soldiers who had retreated inside the footlocker were trundling something out. Something that looked like there was a blinding sizzle of yellow fire, and a sudden gout of wood and plaster exploded from the wall to his left. A rocket launcher! He squeezed off one shot at it, missed, wheeled, and ran back for the bathroom at the far end of the corridor. He slammed the door and locked it. In the bathroom mirror, an Indian was staring back at him with dazed and haunted eyes. A battle-crazed Indian with thin streamers of red paint drawn from holes no bigger than grains of pepper. A ragged flap of skin dangled from one cheek. There was a gouged furrow in his neck. I'm losing. He ran a shaking hand through his hair. The front door was cut off. So was the phone and the kitchen extension. They had a goddamn rocket launcher and a direct hit would tear his head off. Damn it, that wasn't even listed on the box. He started to draw in a long breath and let it out in a sudden grunt as a fist-sized section of the door blew in with a charred burst of wood. Tiny flames glowed briefly around the ragged edges of the hole, and he saw the brilliant flash as they launched another round. More wood blew inward, scattering burning 
slivers on the bathroom rug. He stamped them out, and two of the copters buzzed angrily through the hole. Minuscule BAR slugs stitched his chest. With a whining groan of rage, he smashed one out of the air barehanded, sustaining a picket fence of deep slashes across his palm. In sudden desperate invention, he slung a heavy bath towel over the other. It fell, writhing to the floor, and he stamped the life out of it. His breath was coming in hoarse whoops. Blood ran into one eye, hot and stinging, and he wiped it away. There, goddammit. There, that'll make him think. Indeed, it didn't seem to make them think. There was no movement for fifteen minutes. Renshaw sat on the edge of the tub, thinking feverishly. You know, take the top out of that toilet, that, that ceramic slab. Yeah. And just fucking just, run out there absolutely. and just fucking bat him. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> there had to be a way out of this blind alley. There had to be. If there was only a way to flank them. He suddenly turned and looked at the small window over the tub. There was a way. Of course there was. His eyes dropped to the can of lighter fluid on top of the medicine cabinet. He was reaching for it when the rustling noise came. He whirled, bringing the magnum up. But it was only a tiny scrap of paper shoved under the crack of the door. The crack, Renshaw noted grimly, was too narrow for even one of them to get through. There was one <laughs> tiny word written on the paper... Surrender. Renshaw smiled grimly and put the lighter fluid in his breast pocket. There was a chewed stub of pencil beside it. He scrawled one word on the paper and shoved it back under the door. <laughs> the, the door. The word was nuts. Nuts. <laughs> As in suck em. <laughs> there was a sudden blinding barrage of rocket shells and Renshaw backed away. They arched through the hole in the door and detonated against the pale blue tiles above the towel rack, turning the elegant wall into a pocket lunar landscape. Renshaw threw a hand over his eyes as plaster flew in, hot rain of shrapnel. Burning holes ripped through his shirt, and his back was peppered. When the barrage stopped, Renshaw moved. He climbed on top of the tub and slid the window open. Cold stars looked in at him. It was a narrow window and a narrow ledge beyond it, but there was no time to think of that. He boosted himself through, and the cold air slapped his lacerated face and neck like an open hand. He was leaning over the balance point of his hands, staring straight down. Forty stories, Dayoon. From his height, the street looked no wider than a child's train track. The bright, winking lights of the city glittered madly below him like throne jewels. With the deceptive ease of a trained gymnast, Renshaw brought his knees up to the rest on the lower ledge of the window. If one of those wasp-sized copsers flew through the hole in the door now, one shot in the ass would send him <laughs> straight down, screaming all the way. None did. He twisted, thrust one leg out, and one reaching hand grabbed the overhead cornice and held. A moment later, he was standing on the ledge outside the window, deliberately not thinking of the horrifying drop below his heels, not thinking of what would happen if one of the helicopters buzzed out after him, Runshaw edged toward the corner of the building. Fifteen feet. Ten. There. He paused, his chest pressed against the wall, hands splayed out on the rough surface. He could feel the lighter, the lighter fluid in his breast pocket and the reassuring weight of the magnum jammed in his waistband. 
now to get around the goddamn corner. Gently, he eased one foot around and slid his weight onto it. Now the right angle was pressed razor-like into his chest and gut. There was a smear of bird guano in front of his eyes on the rough stone. Christ, he thought crazily. I didn't know they could fly this high. His left foot slipped. For a weird, timeless moment, he tottered over the brink, right arm backwatering madly for balance, and then he was clutching the two sides of the building in a lover's embrace. Face pressed against the hard corner, breath shuddering in and out of his lungs. A bit at a time, he slid the other foot around. Thirty feet away, his own living room terrace jutted out. He made his way down to it, breath sliding in and out of his lungs with shallow force. Twice he was forced to stop as sharp gusts of wind tried to pick him up off the ledge. Then he was there, gripping the ornamented iron railings. He hoisted himself over noiselessly. He had left the curtains half drawn across the sliding glass partition, and now he peered in cautiously. They were just the way he wanted them. Ass too. Right. Four <laughs> soldiers and one copter had been left to guard the footlocker. The rest would be outside the bathroom door with the rocket launcher. Okay. In through the opening like gangbusters, wipe out the ones by the footlocker, then out the door. Then a quick taxi off to the airport, off to Miami, to find Morris's number one idea, girl. He <laughs> thought he might just burn her face off with a flamethrower. That would be poetic justice. He took off his shirt and ripped a long strip from one sleeve. He dropped the rest to flutter limply by his feet and bit off the plastic spout on the can of lighter fluid. He stuffed one end of the rag inside, withdrew it, and stuffed the other end in so only six-inch strip of saturated cotton hung free. He got out his lighter, took a deep breath, and thumbed the wheel. He tipped it to the cloth, and it sprang alight. He rammed open the glass partition and plunged through. The copter reacted instantly, kamikaze diving him as he charged across the rug, dripping tiny splatters of liquid fire. Renshaw straight-armed <laughs> straight it, hardly noticing the jolt of pain that ran up his arm as the turning blades chopped his flesh open. The tiny foot soldiers scattered into the footlocker. After that, it all happened very rapidly. Renshaw threw the lighter fluid. The can caught, mushrooming into a, licked fire, a licking fireball. The next instant, he was reversing, running for the door. He never knew what hit him. It was like a thud that a steel safe would make when dropped from a respectable height. Only this thud ran through the entire high-rise apartment building, thrumming it in its steel frame like a tuning fork. The penthouse door blew off its hinges and shattered against the far wall. A couple who had been walking hand-in-hand hand below looked up in time to see a very large white flash as though a hundred flash guns had gone off at once. Somebody blew a fuse, the man said. I guess. What's that? His girl asked. Something was fluttering lazily down toward them. He caught it in one outstretched hand. Jesus, some guy's shirt, all full of little holes. Bloody, too. I don't like it, she said nervously. Call a cab, huh, Ralph? We'll have to talk to the cops if something happened up there, and I ain't supposed to be out with you. 
Sure, yeah. He looked around, saw a taxi, and whistled. Its brake lights flared, and they ran across to get it. Behind them, unseen, a tiny scrap of paper floated down and landed near the remains of John Renshaw's shirt. Spiky, backhand script read, Hey kids, special in this Vietnam footlocker, for a limited time only, one rocket launcher, 20 surface-to-air twister missiles, and one scale model thermonuclear weapon. What a bunch of fucks. <laughs> Best idea, what, girl. What kid even plays with that shit, <laughs> to be honest? They that... wouldn't know what a thermonuclear weapon is. Right, right. They're kids. Right. Well, this is a special. It's a special. special one. That number one idea, girl. Number one idea, You kill girl. my boy, I got something for you. Here's a thermonuclear weapon, motherfucker. So she put some type of gypsy curse. I, I, who knows? I don't know what kind of toys they're making at this place. <laughs> I just wanted Moore to say company. gypsy curse. It, it, um, I mean, it could be. It very well could be. Um, that was fun. I forgot how much I enjoyed that story, actually. Until that was I fun. To read it. That was fun. I, <laughs> I liked it. And it's, you know, I might go watch the adaptation of that story. Yeah. I might go... Watch Small Soldiers. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows where the night's going to lead me? Hell yeah. Small sto- small Soldiers. God. Uh, the past. I'm going to let you read the next one. And if there are voices, we will do voices. Okay. Naturally. Uh, you wanted to read this one. I mean, I knew the first one. Yeah. I, I knew Battleground. Yeah. I don't really know this one. I, do, I have read it before. I do kind of know it, but I also right. don't really know it. I, I love this. This is one of my favorite short stories. Okay. I, I mean, I feel like I know why, but we'll get into it. Okay. This is Strawberry Spring. spring Jack. I saw those two words in the paper this morning, and my God, how they take me back. All that was eight years ago, almost to the day. Once, while I was going on, while it was going on, I saw myself on nationwide TV, the Walter Cronkite Report. I'll I'll figure these words out eventually. Just a hurrying face in the general background behind the reporter, but my folks picked me out right away. They called long distance. My dad wanted my analysis of the situation. He was all bluff and hearty and man-to-man. My mother just wanted me to come home, but I didn't want to come home. I was enchanted. Enchanted by that dark and mist-blown strawberry spring, and by the shadow of violent death that walked through it on those nights eight years ago. The shadow of spring Jack. spring Jack! <laughs> In New England, they call it a strawberry spring. No one knows why. Great. <laughs> it's just a phrase the old-timers use. I was going to say, what does that mean? Uh, I, I, it's a... It's, uh... Like a warm spot in winter, Just I believe, warm, or something like that. A warm spring. It okay. might it might tell us. I'm not sure. I can't quite remember. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they say. They say um, it happens once every eight or ten years. What happened at New Sharon Teachers College that particular strawberry spring, there may be a cycle for that too. But if anyone has figured it out, they've never said. At New Sharon, the strawberry spring began on March 16th, 1968. The coldest winter in 20 years broke on that day. Oh, okay. Here we go. It rained, and you could smell the sea 20 miles west of the beaches. 
The snow, which had been 35 inches deep in places, began to melt, and the campus walks ran with slush. The winter carnival snow sculptures, which had been kept sharp and clear-cut for two months by the sub-zero temperatures, at last began to sag and slouch. The caricature of Lyndon Johnson in front of the Tep fraternity house cried melted tears. The dove in front of the Prashner Hall lost its frozen feathers, and its plywood skeleton showed sadly through in places. And when night came, the fog came with it, moving silent and white along the narrow college avenues and thoroughfares. The pines in the mall poked through it like counting fingers, and it drifted slow as cigarette smoke under the little bridge down by the Civil War cannons. It made, this, it made things seem out of joint, strange, magical. The unwary traveler would step out of the juke-thumping, brightly lit confusion of the grinder, expecting the hard, clear starriness of winter to clutch him. You hang out at the grinder? Hell yeah, I'd hang out at the grinder. Kurt, Kurt loves <laughs> the grinder. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just have to say it. I love it. And instead, he would suddenly find himself in a silent, muffled world of white, drifting fog. The only sound is own footsteps and the soft drip of water from the ancient gutters. He half expected to see Gollum or Frodo and Sam go hurrying past, or to turn and see that the grinder was gone, vanished, damn. replaced by a Never buff. find the grinder when you need it. I know. Goddamn. <laughs> replaced by a foggy panorama of moors and yew trees and perhaps a druid circle oh. or a sparkling fairy ring. Very nice. The jukebox played Love is Blue that year. It played Hey Jude endlessly, endlessly. It, paid, it played Scarborough Fair. And at ten minutes after eleven on that night, a junior named John Dancy, on his way back to his dormitory, began screaming into the fog, dropping books on and between the sprawled legs of a dead girl lying in a shadowy corner of the Animal Sciences parking lot. Her throat cut from ear to ear, but her eyes opened and almost seemed to sparkle, as if she had just successfully pulled off the funniest joke of her young life. Whoa. Dancy, an education major and a speech minor, screamed and screamed and screamed. The next day was overcast and sullen, and we went to classes with questions eager in our mouths. Who? Why? When do you think they'll get it? And always the final thrilled question, did you know her? Did you know her? Yes, I had an art class with her. Yes, one of my roommate's friends dated her last term. Yes, she asked me for a light once in the grinder. She was at the next table. Yes. Yes, I. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes, I. We all knew her. Her name was Gail Sermon. Pronounced Kerman, so I got that yeah, one right away. Kirk. Pronounced... Yeah, that, that's the, that's <laughs> the thing about reading out loud. Is, uh, you know, those warnings don't come soon enough. <laughs> you read the word however you're going to read it, and then you're just told that you read then, it wrong. Hey, dumbass, it's actually Kerman. Gail Kerman. Who would have guessed not, it? Not me, clearly. Gail Kerman. Here, with a, a major in puppets. <laughs> well, I mean art. So, yeah, you know that's what I studied. Right. She was an art major. She yeah. wore granny glasses and had a good figure. Well, that sounds like my girlfriend. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded creepy. I didn't mean it the way it came out. Hell um, yeah. That's it. <laughs> no, it's a hell yeah. I'm buried. <laughs> I can bleep out my name. It's fine. <laughs> oh fuck. Damn it, I'm so sorry. <laughs> she was well-liked, but her roommates had hated her. Right. She had never gone out much, even though she was one of the most promiscuous girls on campus. Damn. 
She was ugly, but cute. Weird. She had been a vivacious... What does that mean? Make up your mind, Stephen. <laughs> is she ugly or I, is she cute? I believe that he's demonstrating how... Now I how... feel bad for having said that this reminds me of my girlfriend. <laughs> Hold on. So I think he's... I need to go back and cut that out now. Oh, he's demonstrating that everyone knew her. So people thought she was this, but she was also that. People who... People pretending that... Like, people oh, it's thought the they he knew. said, she right, said Right, exactly. Bullshit. Exactly. <laughs> He said, she said, bullshit, correct. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she was ugly, but she was cute. Right. She had been a vivacious girl who talked little and smiled seldom. She had been pregnant and she had had leukemia. Right. Okay. She was a lesbian who had been murdered by her boyfriend. Mm. It was Strawberry Spring. And on the morning of March 17th, we all knew Gail Kerman. Gail Kerman. <laughs> why, did, why did you kill me? Why? Oh, I hope. Help, help me. <laughs> Hi, Gail Kerman. <laughs> I'm dead. I can't do a Kermit, so I'll just throw things out. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Okay. Um, <laughs> there he is. It's Gail Kermit. It's Gail Kermit. Right. Oh, so yeah. So half a dozen police, uh, state police cars crawled onto campus. There's Most a difference. Park. There is. State there is. state police are assholes. Correct. Yes. Oh. I have family with state police. <laughs> but they, I want but you, you know to what? know that they're assholes. You don't have to tell me. I know they're assholes. <laughs> so uh, half a dozen state police cars crawled onto campus, most of them parked in front of the Judith Franklin Hall, where the Kerman girl had lived. On my way past there to my 10 o'clock class, I was asked to show my student ID. I was clever. I showed them the one without the fangs. Do you carry a knife? The policeman asked cunningly. Is it about Gail Kerman? I asked, after I told him that the most lethal thing on my person was a rabbit's foot keychain. What makes you ask? He pounced. I was five minutes late to class. It was strawberry spring and no one walked by themselves through the half-academical, half-fantastical campus that night. The fog had come again, smelling of the sea, quiet and deep. Around nine o'clock, my roommate burst into our room where I had been busting my brains on a Milton essay since seven. They caught him, he said. I heard it over at the grinder. From who? <laughs> Kurt, because Kurt loves the grinder. <laughs> he sure does. I don't know. Some guy. Her boyfriend did it. His name is Carl Alabama. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I settled back, relieved and disappointed. With a name like that, it had to be true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a Sweet Carl Alabama. A lethal and sordid little crime of passion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I said. That's good. He left the room to spread the news down the hall. I reread my Milton essay. Couldn't figure out what I'd been See, trying to say. Do you have anything better to do? Not really. <laughs> hey, everyone. <laughs> Sweet. Hey, Carl everyone. Alabama. <laughs> he killed her. He did it. He did it. Haven't you heard? <laughs> I've been saying it for five minutes now. I said it to them. Now I'm saying it to you. <laughs> Does he have anything? What what does Stephen King think? He's the he's the these gossip. one use characters. He is the he is the, the uh, town crier. The town crier, yes. Yeah. I reread my Milton essay, couldn't figure out what I'd been trying to say, tore it up and started again. Well that's just a waste. It was. It, it was, was in the papers in the, the papers next, next day. day. Was that? It was. It was. It was in the papers the next day. day. There was an incongruously neat picture of Alabama. Uh -huh. Probably a high school graduation picture. And it showed a rather sad-looking boy with an olive complexion and dark eyes and pockmarks on his nose. 
The boy had not confessed yet, but the evidence against him was strong. He and Gail Kerman had argued a great deal in the last month or so and had broken up the week before. Alabama's roomie said he had been despondent. In a footlocker under his bed, police had found a seven-inch hunting knife from L.L. Beans and a picture of the girl that had apparently been cut up with a pair of shears. Relax, Alabama. Besides Alabama's picture was one of Gail Kerman. It blurrily showed a dog, a peeling lawn flamingo, and a rather mousy blonde girl wearing spectacles. Which one is she? <laughs> <laughs> Which one is it? You, you called her ugly or you called her cute? Is she the dog, the flamingo, She's or the girl? Definitely the flamingo. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> an uncomfortable smile had turned her lips up, and her eyes were squinted. One hand was on the dog's head. It was true then. She was a flamingo. <laughs> it had to be true. Uh, the fog came again that night, not on little cat's feet, but in an improper silent sprawl. I walked that night. I had a headache, and I walked for air, smelling the wet, misty smell of the spring that was slowly wiping away the reluctant snow, leaving lifeless patches of last year's grass bare and uncovered, like the head of a sighing old grandmother. For me, that was one of the most beautiful nights I can remember. The people I passed under the haloed streetlights were murmuring shadows, and all of them seemed to be lovers, walking with hands and eyes linked. The melting snow dripped and ran, dripped and ran, and from every dark storm drain, the sound of the sea drifted up, a dark winter sea now strongly ebbing. I walked until ne nearly midnight, until I was thoroughly mildewed, and I passed many shadows, heard many footfalls clicking dreamily off down the winding paths. Who is to say that one of those shadows was not the man or the thing that came to be known as Springhill Jack? Springhill Jack! <laughs> <laughs> not I, for I passed many shadows, but in the fog, I saw no faces. The next morning, the clamor in the hall woke me. I blundered out to see who had been drafted, combing my hair with both hands and running the fuzzy caterpillar that had craftily replaced my tongue across the dry roof of my mouth. He got another one. It's me. It's the guy. It's the thing that I do. I wait for people to tell me things, and then I run out and tell everyone else. It's your turn to know that he, he got another one. That guy said to me. His face pallid with excitement. He got it. They had, they had to let him go. Who go? Alabama. Someone else said gleefully. No, it's the same guy telling you everything. <laughs> We're having a conversation. He was sitting in jail when it happened. When what happened, I asked patiently. Sooner or later, I would get it. I was sure of that. The guy killed somebody else last night, and now they're hunting all over for it. For what? The pallid face wavered in front of me again. Her head, bum bum bum. Oh. Whoever killed her took her head with him. Yikes! This, I gotta tell everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Clyde. I don't know why he's Clyde. Don't you dare fucking tell anyone. It's my job to tell everyone. <laughs> Fuck you. Don't say shit, God. Don't say Damn, shit, Clyde, relax. New Sharon isn't a. Uh, let me try again. <laughs> New Sharon. Isn't a big school now. What about old Sharon? <laughs> well, this is new Sharon. All right. Old Sharon's huge, but this new Sharon isn't, isn't a big school now and was even smaller then. The kind of institution the public relations people chummily refer to as a community college. Oh, come on. And it really was like a small community, at least in those days. Between you and your friends, you probably had at least a nodding acquaintance with everybody else and their friends. Gail Kerman had been the type of girl you just nodded to, thinking vaguely that you had seen her around. That's sad. 
We all knew Anne Bray. She had been the first runner-up in the Miss New England pageant the year before. Mm-hmm. Her talent performance consisting of twirling a flaming baton to the tune of Hey, Look Me Over. She was brainy, too. Until the time of her death, she had been editor of the school newspaper, a once-weekly rag with a lot of political cartoons and bombastic letters, a member of the Student Dramatic Society, and president of the National Service Sorority, New Sharon Branch. So she stopped being those things when she's dead then. Right. Or, okay, I just want to make sure. We had to know what she was to care about right. her being dead. Right, but I particularly like uh, that, that until the time of her death. So I love the use of hey look me over uh, because it really it really is saying hey look for my head right. which which I don't know if you know that was the second title that the guy was going to name that song I didn't you're always educating me that's, I that's why Stephen it. King's a smart I, he writer is smart. He that's knows. why he's a smart he writer is. So yeah, so in the hot, fierce bubblings of my freshman youth, I had submitted a column idea to the paper and asked for a date. Turned down on both counts. Nice. And now she was dead. Worse than dead. What's worse than dead? Beheaded. Yeah, fair. I guess. I walked to my afternoon classes like everyone else, nodding to people I knew and saying hi with a little more force than usual, as if that would make up for the close way I studied their faces, which was the same way they were studying mine. There was someone dark among us. As dark as the paths was twisted across the mall and wound around along the hundred-year-old oaks on the quad in back of the gymnasium. As dark as the hulking Civil War cannon seen through a drifting membrane of fog. Membrane of fog. We looked into each other's faces and tried to read the darkness behind one of them. This time, the police arrested no one. Blue beetles patrolled the campus ceaselessly on the foggy spring nights of the 18th, 19th, and 20th and spotlights stabbed into the dark nooks and crannies with erratic eagerness. The administration imposed a mandatory nine o'clock curfew. A foolhardy couple discovered necking in the landscaped bushes north of the Tate Alumni Building were taken to the New Sharon Police Station and grilled unmercifully for three Can't hours. Can't be out doing that shit. Someone's out here killing you people. You make it out. Ain't nobody got time for that. We need, we need three hours to dissect this. There was a hysterical false alarm on the 20th when a boy was found unconscious in the same parking lot where the body of Gail Kerman had been found. A gibbering campus cop loaded him into the back of his cruiser and put a map of the county over his face without bothering to hunt for a pulse and started toward the local hospital, siren wailing across the deserted campus like a seminar of banshees. Halfway there, the corpse in the back seat had risen and asked hollowly, Where am I? (laughs) The cop shrieked and ran off the road. That's canon. That is canon. The corpse turned out to be an undergrad named Donald Morris, who had been in the in bed the last two days with a pretty lively case of the flu. Was it Asian that year? Oh, being, being silly. I can't remember. Anyway, he fainted in the parking lot on his way to the grinder for a bowl of soup and some toast. I'm, you know, I'm going to find out what the grinder is at some point. <laughs> the days continued warm and overcast. I thought it was a gay bar, and now I'm being... I, being, just, I think it, it's just. Some, I think it's just like. I think it's a diner. I think it's just where the yeah, where they all hang out. I'm disappointed. I'm sorry. I'm, in my head canon, it's a gay bar. I mean, that's how I like. There's it. definitely some gay people there. Because there's got to be a reason why Kurt loves to put people <laughs> into the diner. <laughs> oh. oh, okay. The days continued warm and overcast. People clustered in small groups that had a tendency to break up and reform with surprising speed. Looking at the same set of faces for too long gave you funny ideas about some of them. And the speed with which rumors swept from one end of the campus to the other began to approach the speed of light, 
A well-liked history professor had been overheard laughing and weeping down by the small bridge. Gail Kerman had left a cryptic two-word message written in her own blood on the blacktop of the Animal Sciences parking lot. Both murders were actually political crimes, ritual murders that had been performed by an offshoot of the SDS to protest the war. This was really laughable. The new Sharon SDS had seven members. One fair-sized offshoot would have bankrupted the whole organization. This fact brought even more sinister embellishment from the campus right-wingers, outside agitators. So during those queer, warm days, we all kept our eyes peeled for them. The press, always fickle, ignored the strong resemblance our murderer bore to Jack the Ripper and dug further back, all the way to 1819. Anne Bray had been found on a soggy path of ground some 12 feet from the nearest sidewalk, and yet there were no footprints, not mm -hmm. even her own. An enterprising New Hampshire newsman with a passion for the arcane christened the killer Springheel Jack after the infamous Dr. John Hawkins of Bristol, who did five of his wives to death with odd pharmaceutical knickknacks. And the name, probably because of that soggy yet unmarked ground, stuck. On the 21st, it rained again, and the mall and quadrangle became quagmires. The police announced that they were salting plain salting plainclothes detectives, men and women, about and took half the police cars off duty. The campus newspaper published a strongly indignant, if slightly incoherent, editorial protesting this. The upshot of it seemed to be that, with all sorts of cops masquerading as students, it would be impossible to tell a real outside agitator from a false one. Mm. Twilight came, and the fog with it, drifting up tree-lined avenues slowly, almost thoughtfully blotting out the buildings one by one. It was soft, insubstantial stuff, and somehow implacable and frightening. Springheel Jack was a man, no one seemed to doubt that, but the fog was his accomplice, and it was female. Damn. Or so it seemed to me. Slut. Sexy fog. <laughs> it was as if our little school was caught between them, squeezed in some crazy lover's embrace, part of a marriage that had been consummated in blood. I sat and smoked and watched the lights come on in the growing darkness and wondered if it was all over. My roommate came in and shut the door quietly behind him. Oh, it's, it's me. It's that guy. I, I'm your roommate, remember? It's, that's why I stopped by and I tell you these things. I said I, said I found out it's going to snow soon. He said. I turned around and looked at him. Does the radio say that? No, no. Who needs the weatherman? You know what I'm saying? Have you ever heard of a strawberry spring? That's an unrelated question. I just changed up the conversation like that. I, I mean, maybe, I said, a long time ago. Something grandmothers talk about, isn't it? He stood beside me, looking out at the creeping dark. Strawberry spring is like Indian summer, only much more rare. You get a good Indian summer in this part of the country every once every two or three years. A spell of weather like we've been having is supposed to come only every eight or ten. It's fall spring, a line spring like Indian summer is a false summer. My old grandmother used to say strawberry springs means the worst. Norther of the winter is still on the way. And the longer this lasts, the harder the storm. That's what my grandmother says. She says that thing to me sometimes and then I go and I say it to other people. <laughs> Grandma's senile. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> Folk tales, I said. Never believe a word. I looked at him. But I'm nervous, aren't you? He smiled benevolently and stole one of my cigarettes from the open pack on the window ledge. Ah, I suspect everyone but me and thee. <laughs> he said, and then the smile faded a little. And sometimes I wonder about thee. 
Want to go over to the Union and shoot some eight ball? I'll spot you a ten. Trig prelim next week. I'm going to settle down with a magic marker and a hot pile of notes. Hell yeah, brother. For a long time after he was gone, I could only look out the window. And even after I had opened my book and started in, part of me was still out there, walking in the shadows where something dark was now in charge. That night, Adele Parkins was killed. I'm picking up that this dude's a serial killer. I think, uh, I think, uh... He's letting it slowly crack through that he's been, you know, he's like, today's gonna be the day I'm gonna get caught. Anyway, hey, how's it going, man? Did you hear about this thing with Strawberry Spring? Let's, let's put a pin in that for the end of this. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Six police cars and 17 collegiate-looking plainclothesmen, eight of them were women, imported all the way from Boston, patrolled the campus. But spring Hill Jack killed her just the same, going unerringly for, for one of our own. The false spring, the lying spring, aided and abetted him. He killed her and left her propped behind the wheel of her 1964 Dodge to be found the next morning. And they found part of her in the back seat, and part of her in the trunk. And written in blood on the windshield, this time fact instead of rumor, were two words. Ha ha! Well, it's more of like a ho ho! <laughs> and then everyone thought it was Santa Claus, so he changed it back. Ha ha! Yeah. You want to confuse people? The campus went slightly mad after that. All of us and none of us had known Adele Parkins. She was one of those nameless, harried women who worked the breakback shift in the grinder from six to eleven at night, facing hordes of hamburger happy students on study break from the library across the way. She must have had it relatively easy those last three foggy nights of her life. The curfew was being rigidly observed, and after nine, the grinder's only patrons were hungry cops and happy janitors. The empty buildings had improved their habitual bad temper considerably. There's little left to tell. The police, as prone to hysteria as any of us, and driven against the wall, arrested an innocuous homosexual sociology graduate named Hanson Gray, who claimed he could not remember where he had spent several of the lethal evenings. <laughs> The answer should have been the grinder, and the fact that the fact that it's not a gay bar, yeah, with Kurt. <laughs> the fact that it's now not a gay bar is a damn shame. It is. It is. Well, they charged him, arraigned him, and let him go to scamper hurriedly back to his native New Hampshire town after the last unspeakable night of Strawberry Spring, when Marcia Curran was slaughtered on the mall. Why she had been out and alone is forever beyond knowing. She was a fat, sadly pretty thing who lived in an apartment in town with three other girls. She had slipped on campus as silently and as easily as spring Jack himself. What brought her? Perhaps her need was as deep as a, and as ungovernable as her killers, and just as far beyond understanding. Maybe a need for one desperate and passionate romance with the warm night, the warm fog, the smell of the sea, and the cold knife. That was on the 23rd. On the 24th, the president of the college announced that spring break would be moved up a week, and we scattered, not joyfully, but like frightened sheep before a storm, leaving the campus empty and haunted by the police and one dark specter. I had my own car on campus, and I took six people downstate with me, their luggage crammed in helter-skelter. It wasn't a pleasant ride. For all any of us knew, spring Jack might have been in the car with us. That night, the thermometer dropped 15 degrees, and the whole northern New England area was belted by a shrieking norther that began in sleet and ended in a foot of snow. The usual number of old duffers had heart attacks, shoveling it away, and then, like magic, it was April. Clean showers and starry nights. They called it Strawberry Spring. 
God knows why, and it's an evil, lying time that only comes once every eight or ten years. Springhill Jack left with the fog, and by early June, campus conversation had turned to a series of draft protests and a sit-in at the building where a well-known napalm manufacturer was holding job interviews. By June, the subject of Springhill Jack was almost unanimously avoided, at least allowed. I suspect there were many who turned it over and over privately, looking for the one crack in the seamless egg of madness that would, tell, that would make sense of it all. That was the year I graduated, and the next year was the year I married. A good job in a local publishing house. In 1971, we had a child, and now he's almost school age. A fine and questing boy with my eyes and her mouth. Then, today's paper. That's not how babies are made. No, it's definitely not. But, you know. <laughs> Would you want to, like, dissect my, how that's done? Or? My eyes, <laughs> my your, eyes mouth, your mouth, now. <laughs> Of course, I knew it was here. I knew it yesterday morning when I got up and heard the mysterious sound of snowmelt running down the gutters and smelled the salt tang of the ocean from our front porch, nine miles from the nearest beach. I knew Strawberry Spring had come again, and when I started home from work last night and had to turn on my headlights against the mist that was already beginning to creep out of the fields and hollows, blurring the lines of buildings and putting fairy halos around the street lamps. This morning's paper says a girl was killed on the New Sharon campus near the Civil War cannons. She was killed last night and found in a melting snowbank. She was not... she was not all there. My wife is upset. She wants to know where I was last night. I can't tell her because I don't remember. I remember starting home from work and I remember putting my headlights on to search my way through the lovely creeping fog. But that's all I remember. I've been thinking about that foggy night when I had a headache and walked for air and passed all the lovely shadows without shape or substance. And I've been thinking about the trunk of my car. Such an ugly word, trunk. And wondering why in the world I should be afraid to open it. I can hear my wife as I write this in the next room crying. She thinks I was with another woman last night. And oh dear God, I think so too. Bum, 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 bum. This motherfucker yeah. Spring Heel Jack. Spring Heel Jack. <laughs> I love that story. I, I just always have. Um, I want to say. Yes. I liked that. Yeah. It was nice. <laughs> and that's about it. <laughs> I don't. I don't have any other emotions for it. Mm -hmm. It's just very, it's very just Stephen King being, oh. being poetic and, and yep. fun and 100%. doing his own, his own little thing. He's just like, I don't know. He could be talking about fucking any of the college serial sure. killers that, that, that went around and did sure. a bunch of shit at that time. You know, for me, it's those last lines. My wife thinks I was with another woman last night. Oh, oh dear, dear God, God, I, I think, think so, so too. too. Like I, that line, it the just grim always realization. Hit, it hits me. Like I just don't know why. It's just those those last couple lines just they always get me. I'm like fuck yeah. So the strawberry spring brings brings about a change in him that even he is not truly in control of. No, but he 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 definitely knows about it in some. He knows he's doing it, right? But he doesn't at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I like it. It reminds me of Dexter talking about his dark passenger. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
which I I just like to think it's just a bad nickname for his black friend. <laughs> Whenever he said that in the show, I was just like, you can't call him that. You can't. You can't call your token black friend the dark passenger, you Michael C. Hall. Definitely can't. Certainly not. Not not in this day. In the night. Yeah. <sighs> we're, we're gonna read the ledge. Which the character ledge. do you want? Um, Did you want the one who has to do the walking or the one who wants to yell at the other guy to do the walking? Oh, that's good. That's that's tough. I'll, I'll go with, uh, I don't know, what are you feeling? I don't give a fuck. <laughs> you, be, you know what? I'm going to be the guy walking. You be the guy yelling. So I believe that's Kressner. Yeah. Go on, Kressner said again. Look in the bag. We were in his penthouse apartment 43 stories up. The carpet was deep cut pile, burnt or Oh, fuck. This is the ledge. <laughs> Do I change my voice now because I got to restart? I, I, the ledge. Go ahead. Yeah. This is the ledge by Stephen King. <laughs> uh, <laughs> go oh, on. No, 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 no. Go on. Go on. Go on. Kressner said again, look in the bag. Look in the look in the bag. Look. <laughs> Roy Alwit Cheese is a big fan of my of oh, my I uh, love his walking voice. Oh god. It's a guaranteed laugh every time. If it's a payoff, forget it. <laughs> That's my logic. <laughs> I know. Alright, so <laughs> Go on, Kressner said again. Look in the bag. We were in his penthouse apartment, 43 stories up. The carpet was deep cut, pile, burnt orange. In the middle, between the basque sling chair where Kressner sat, and the genuine leather couch where no one at all sat, there was a brown shopping bag. If it's a payoff, forget it. I love her. It's money. But it's not a payoff. Go on. Look. He was smoking a Turkish cigarette in an onyx holder. The air circulation system allowed me just a dry whiff of the tobacco and then whipped it away. Was he the penguin? Uh, Yeah, he might. Danny DeVito? Maybe, with the onyx holder? I don't know. Sorry. He was wearing a silk... (laughs) This is a good comment. He was wearing a silk dressing gown on which a dragon was embroidered. If it had said penguin, I would have lost it. His <laughs> eyes were calm and intelligent behind his glasses. He looked... <laughs> see, now my eye fucks up and says, He looked like a bitch! <laughs> because I see <laughs> the line. Do I look like a bitch? <laughs> it's the line directly it. underneath it. <laughs> he looked like what he was, a bitch. <laughs> he looked just like what he was. A... An A number one 500 carat... Died in the wool, son of a bitch. I loved his wife, and she loved me. I had expected him to make trouble, and I knew this was it, but I just wasn't sure what brand it was. I went to the shopping bag and tipped it over. Banded bundles of currency tumbled out onto the rug, all twenties. I picked one of the bundles up and counted. Ten bills to a bundle. There were a lot of bundles. I like to say bundles. (laughs) Twenty thousand dollars, he said, and puffed on his cigarette. I stood up. Okay. It's for you. I don't want it. My wife comes with it. Mm. 
I didn't say anything. Marcia had warned me how it would be. He's like a cat, she said. An old torn full of meanness. He'll try to make you a mouse. So, you're a tennis pro, he said. I don't believe I've ever actually seen one before. You mean your detectives didn't get any pictures? Oh, yes, he waved the cigarette holder negligently. Even a motion picture of the two of you in that Bayside motel. A camera was behind the mirror. But pictures are hardly the same, are they? If you say so. He'll keep changing tacks, Marcia had said. It's the way he puts people on the defensive. Pretty soon he'll have you hitting out at where you think he's going to be, and he'll get you someplace else. Say as little as possible, Stan, and remember that I love you. I invited you up because I thought we should have a little man-to-man -man chat, Mr. Norris. Just a pleasant conversation between two civilized human beings, one of whom has made off with the other's wife. I started to answer, but decided not to. Did you enjoy San Quentin? Puffing lazily. Not particularly. I believe you passed three years there. A charge of breaking and entering, if I'm correct. Marcia knows about it. I said and immediately wished I hadn't. I was playing his game, just what Marcia had warned against. Hitting soft lobs for him to smash back. I've taken the liberty of having your car moved, he said, glancing out at the window at the far end of the room. It really wasn't a window at all. The whole wall was glass. In the middle was a sliding glass door. Beyond it, a balcony the size of a postage stamp. Beyond that, a very long drop. There was something strange about the door. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. This is a very pleasant building. Good security. Closed circuit TV and all that. When I knew you were in the lobby, I made a telephone call. An employee then hotwired the ignition of your car and moved it from the parking area here to a public lot several blocks away. He glanced up at the modernistic sunburnt clock above the couch. It was 8.05. At 8.20... The same employee will call the police from a public phone booth concerning your car. By 8.30, at the latest, the minions of the law will have discovered over six ounces of heroin hidden in the spare tire of your trunk. You will be eagerly sought after, Mr. Norris. He had set me up. I had tried to cover myself as well as I could, but in the end I had been child's play for him. These things will happen unless I call my employee and tell him to forget the phone call. And all I have to do is tell you where Marsha is. No deal, Kressner. I don't know. We set it up this way just for you. My men had her followed. I don't think so. I think we lost them at the airport. Kressner sighed. <sighs> Removed the smoldering cigarette holder and dropped it into a chromium ashtray with a sliding lid. No fuss, no muss, the used cigarette, and Stan Norris had been taken care of with equal ease. Actually, you're right. The old lady's room vanishing act, my operatives were extremely vexed to have been taken in by such an ancient ruse. I think it was so old they never expected it. I said nothing. 
After Marcia had ditched Kressner's operatives at the airport, she had taken the bus shuttle back to the city and then to the bus station. That had been the plan. She had $200, all the money that had been in my savings account. Fuck. $200 and a Greyhound bus could take you any place in this country. Are you always so uncommunicative? Kressner asked, and he sounded genuinely interested. Marcia advised him. A little more sharply, he said, Then I imagine you'll stand on your rights when the police take you in. And the next time you see my wife could be when she's a little old grandmother in a rocker. Have you gotten that through your head? I understand that possession of six ounces of heroin could get you forty years. That won't get you, Marcia, back. He smiled thinly. And that's the nub of it, isn't it? Shall I review where we are? You and my wife have fallen in love. Mm -hmm. You have had an affair. Oh, yeah. If you want to call a series of one-nighters in cheap motels an affair, my wife has left me. However, I have you. And you are in what is called a bind. Does that summarize it adequately? I can understand why she got tired of you. To my surprise, he threw back his head and laughed. You know I rather like you, Mr. Norris. You're vulgar, and you're a piker, but you seem to have heart. Marcia said you did. I rather doubted it. Her judgment of character is lax, but you do have a certain verve, which is why I've set things up the way I have. No doubt Marcia has told you that I am fond of wagering. Yes... Now I knew what was wrong with the door in the middle of the glass wall. It was the middle of winter, and no one was going to want to take tea on a balcony 43 stories up. The balcony had been cleared of furniture, and the screen had been taken off the door. Now why would Kressner have done that? Hmm. I don't like my wife very much, Kressner said, fixing another cigarette carefully in the holder. That's no secret. I'm sure she's told you as much, and I'm sure a man of your experience knows that contented wives do not jump into the hay with the local tennis club pro at the drop of a racket. In my opinion, Marcia is a prissy, way-faced little prude. A whiner, a weeper, a bearer of tales. That's uh, about enough. He smiled coldly. I beg your pardon. I keep forgetting we are discussing your beloved. It's 8.16, are you nervous? I shrugged. Tough to the end, he said, and lit his cigarette. At any rate, you may wonder why. If I dislike Marcia so much, I do not simply give her her freedom. No, I don't wonder at all. He frowned at me. You're a selfish, grasping, egocentric son of a bitch. That's why. No one takes what's yours, not even if you don't want it anymore. He went red and laughed. One for you, Mr. Morris, very good. I shrugged again. I'm going to offer you a wager. If you win, you leave here with the money, the woman, and your freedom. On the other hand, if you lose, you lose your life. I looked at the clock. I couldn't help it. It was 8.19. All right. What else? It would buy time, at least. Time for me to think of some way to beat it out of here, with or without the money. Kressner picked up the telephone beside him and dialed a number. Tony? Plan two. Yes and hung up. What's plan two? I'll call Tony back in 15 minutes and he will remove the offending substance from the trunk of your car and drive it back here. If I don't call, he will get in touch with the police. Not very trusting, are you? Be sensible, Mr. Morris. 
There is $20,000 on the carpet between us. In this city, murder has been committed for 25 cents. What's the bet? He looked genuinely pained. Wager, Mr. Norris. Wager. Gentlemen make wagers. Vulgarians place bets. Whatever you say. Excellent. I've seen you looking at my balcony. The screen's off the door. Yes. I had it taken off this afternoon. What I propose is this, that you walk around my building on the ledge that juts out just below the penthouse level. If you circumnavigate the building successfully, the jackpot is yours. You're crazy. On the contrary. I have proposed this wager six times to six different people during my dozen years in this apartment. Three of the six were professional athletes like you. One of them, a notorious quarterback more famous for his TV commercials than his passing game, one a baseball player, one a rather famous jockey who had made an extraordinary yearly salary, and who was also afflicted with extraordinary alimony problems. The other three were more ordinary citizens who had differing professions, but to two things in common, a need for money and a certain degree of body grace. He puffed his cigarette thoughtfully and then continued. The wager was declined five times out of hand. On the other occasion, it was accepted. The terms were $20,000 against six months' service to me. I collected. The fellow took one look over the edge of the balcony and nearly fainted. Crespin looked amused and contemptuous. He said everything down there looks so small. That was what killed his nerve. What makes you think... He cut me off with an annoyed wave of his hand. Don't bore me, Mr. Norris. I think you will do it because you have no choice. It's my wager, on the one hand, or forty years in San Quentin on the other. The money and my wife are only added Phillips, indicative of my good nature. What guarantee do I have that you won't double-cross me? Maybe I'd do it and find out you'd call Tony and told him to go ahead anyway. He sighed. <sighs> You are a walking case of paranoia, Mr. Norris. I don't love my wife. It is doing my storied ego no good at all to have her around. $20,000 is a pittance to me. I pay four times that every week to, to be given to police bagmen. As for the wager, however, his eyes gleamed. That is beyond price. I thought about it, and he left me. I suppose he knew the real Mark always convinces himself. I was a 36-year-old tennis bum, and the club had been thinking of letting me go when Marsha applied a little gentle pressure to my dick. Tennis was the only profession I knew, and without it, even getting a job as a janitor would be tough, especially with a record. It was kid stuff, but employers don't care. And the funny thing was that I really loved Marsha Kressner. I had fallen for her after two nine o'clock tennis lessons, and she had fallen for me just as hard, and now I'm going to fall off a building. Hell yeah. It was a case of Stan Norris luck, all right. After 36 years of happy bachelorhood, I had fallen like a sack of mail for the wife of an organization overlord. How different would this story be if it was fucking Chuck Norris? I mean... No worries, no, it's... He'd make it look easy. 
He'd jump off the building, bounce back up, and kick him in the neck. He'd he'd have a running start. He would. Like, <laughs> he'd just float around the building. He wouldn't even need to be on the ledge. Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> too bad it was Stan Norris and yeah, not Chuck. Fucking Stan. I also like that the organization came back. Yes, yes. Does the organization come up in anything else Stephen King related? Um, not a ton. It sounds like the the uh, the family from like fucking Wanted or some shit. <laughs> the, uh, sprinkled here or there, but not not majorly. <sighs> the old Tom sitting there and puffing his imported Turkish cigarette knew all that, of course, and something else as well. I had no guarantee that he wouldn't turn me in if I accepted his wager and won, but I knew damn well that I'd be in the cooler by 10 o'clock if I didn't. And the next time I'd be free would be at the turn of the century. I want to know one thing. What might that be, Mr. Norris? Look me right in the face and tell me you're, if you're a Welsher or not. He looked at me directly. Mr. Norris, he said quietly, I never Welsh. All right. What other choice was there? He stood up, beaming. Excellent! Really excellent! Approach the door to the balcony with me, Mr. Norris. We walked over together. His face was that of a man who had dreamed this scene hundreds of times and was enjoying it actuality to its fullest. The ledge is five inches wide, he said dreamily. I've measured it myself. In fact, I've stood on it, holding on to the balcony, of course. All you have to do is lower yourself over the wrought iron railing. You'll be chest high. But of course, beyond the railing, there are no hand grips. You'll have to inch your way along, being very careful not to overbalance. <clears throat> my eye had fastened on to something else outside the window. Something that made my blood temperature sink several degrees. It was a wind gauge. Kressner's apartment was quite close to the lake, and it was high enough so there were no higher buildings to act as a windbreak. That wind would be cold, and it would cut like a knife. The needle was standing at ten pretty steadily, but a gust would send the needle almost up to twenty-five for a few seconds before dropping off. Ah, I see you've noticed my wind gauge, Kressner said jovially. <laughs> Actually, it's the other side which gets the prevailing wind, so the breeze may be a little stronger on that side. But actually, this is a fairly still night. I've seen evenings when the wind has gusted up to 85. You can actually feel the building rock a little. Mm. A bit like being on a ship in the crow's nest. And it's quite mild for this time of year. He pointed, and I saw the lighted numerals atop a bank skyscraper to the left. They said it was 44 degrees. But with the wind, that would have made the chill factor somewhere in the mid-twenties. Have you got a coat? I was wearing a light jacket. Alas, no. <laughs> the lighted figures on the bank switched to show the time. It was 8.32. And I think you had better get started, Mr. Norris, so I can call Tony and put Plan 3 into effect. A good boy, but apt to be impulsive, you understand. I understood all right. Too damn well. But the thought of being with Marcia free from Kressner's tentacles and with enough money to get started at something made me push open the sliding glass door and step out onto the balcony. It was cold and damp, 
The wind ruffled my hair into my eyes. Bone <laughs> Bon Sawyer. <laughs> Bonsoir, Kressner said beside me. But I didn't bother to look back at him. I approached the railing, but I didn't look down. Not yet. I began to do deep breathing. It's not really an exercise at all, but a form of self-hypnosis. With every inhale-exhale, you throw a distraction out of your mind until there's nothing left but the match ahead of you. I got rid of the money with one breath, and Kressner himself with two. Marcia took longer. Her face kept rising to my mind, telling me not to be stupid, not to play this game, that maybe Kressner never welshed, but he always hedged his bets. I didn't listen. I couldn't afford to. If I lost this match, I wouldn't have to buy the beers and take the ribbing. I'd be so much scarlet sludge splattered for a block of Deakman Street in both directions. When I thought I had it, I looked down. The building sloped away like smooth chalk cliff to the street far below. The cars parked there looked like those matchbox models you can buy in five and dime. The ones driving by the building were just tiny pinpoints of light, if you fell that far, you would have plenty of time to realize just what was happening, to see the wind blowing your clothes as the earth per pulled you back faster and faster. You'd have time to scream a long, long scream, and the sound you made when you hit the pavement would be like the sound of an overripe watermelon. I could understand why that other guy had chickened out, but he'd only had six months to worry about. I was staring forty long, gray, marshalless years in the eye. I looked at this ledge. It looked small. I had never seen five inches that looked so much like two. <laughs> Ask my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> at least the building was fairly new. It wouldn't crumble under me, I hoped. I swung over the railing and carefully lowered myself until I was standing on the ledge. My heels were out over the drop. The floor of the balcony was about chest high, and I was looking into Kressner's penthouse through the wrought iron ornament bars. He was standing inside the door, smoking, watching me, the way a scientist watches a guinea pig to see what the latest injection will do. Call. Holding onto the railing. What? Call Tony. I don't move until you do. He went back into the living room. It looked amazingly warm and safe and cozy, and picked up the phone. It was a worthless gesture, really. With the wind, I couldn't hear what he was saying. He put down the phone and returned. Taken care of, Mr. Norris. It better be. Goodbye, Mr. Norris. I'll see you in a bit, perhaps? It was time to do it. Talking was done. I let myself think of Marcia one last time, her light brown hair, her wide gray eyes, her lovely body, and then put her out of my mind for good. No more looking down, either. It would have been too easy to get paralyzed, looking down through that space. Too easy to just freeze up until you lost your balance or just fainted from fear. It was time for tunnel vision. Time to concentrate on nothing but left foot, right foot. I began to move to the right, holding on to the balcony's railing as long as I could. It didn't take long to see I was going to need all the tennis muscle my ankles had. With my heels beyond the edge, those tendons would be taking all my weight. I got to the end of the balcony, and for a moment, I didn't think I was going to be able to let go of that safety. I forced myself to do it. Five inches, hell, that was plenty of room. 
If the ledge were only a foot off the ground instead of 400 feet, you could breeze around this building in four minutes flat, I told myself. So just pretend it is. Yeah, and if you fall from a ledge a foot off the ground, you just say rats and try again. Up here, you only get one chance. I slid my right foot further and then brought my left foot next to it. I let go of the railing. I put my open hands up, allowing the palms to rest against the rough stone of the apartment building. I caressed the stone. I could have kissed it. A gust of wind hit me, snapping the collar of my jacket against my face, making my body sway on the ledge. My heart jumped into my throat and stayed there until the wind had died down. A strong enough gust would have peeled me right off the perch and sent me flying down into the night, and the wind would be stronger on the other side. I turned my head to the left, pressing my cheek against the stone. Kressner was leaning over the building, watching me. Enjoying yourself, he asked affably. He was wearing a brown camel's hair overcoat. I thought you didn't have a coat. I lied. He answered equably. I lie about a lot of things. What's that supposed to mean? Nothing. Nothing at all. Or perhaps it does mean something. A little psychological warfare, eh, Mr. Norris? I should tell you not to linger over long. The ankles grow tired, and if they should give way... He took an apple out of his pocket, bit into it, and then tossed it over their edge. There was no sound for a long time, then a faint and sickening plop. Kressner chuckled. I don't even think you'd hear that all the way that up there. You, you probably you really wouldn't. Not over the wind. He had broken my concentration, and I could feel panic nibbling at the edges of my mind with steel teeth. A torrent of terror wanted to rush in and drown me. I turned my head away from him and did deep breathing, flushing the panic away. I was looking at the lighted bank sign, which now said 846. Time to save it mutual! <laughs> By the time the lighted numbers read 849, I felt that I had myself under control again. I think Kressner must have decided I'd frozen, and I heard a sardonic patter of applause when I began to shuffle toward the corner of the building again. I began to feel the cold. The lake had wetted the edge of the wind, its clammy dampness bit at my skin like an auger. My thin jacket billed out behind me as I shuffled along. I moved slowly, cold or not. If I was going to do this, I would have to do it slowly and deliberately. If I rushed, I would fall. The bank clock read 8.52 when I reached the corner. It didn't appear to be a problem. The ledge went right around, making a square corner, but my right hand told me that there was a crosswind. If I got caught leaning the wrong way, I would take a long ride very quickly. I waited for the wind to drop, but for a long time it refused to, almost as though it were Kressner's willing ally. It slapped against me with vicious invisible fingers, prying and poking and tickling. At last, after a particularly strong gust had made me rock on my toes, I knew that I could wait forever and the wind would never drop all the way off. So the next time it sank a little, I slipped my right foot around and, clutching both walls with my hands, made the turn. The crosswind pushed me two ways at once and I tottered. For a second, I was sickeningly sure that Kressner had won his wager. Then I slid a step further along and pressed myself tightly against the wall, a held breath slipping out of my dry throat. That was when the raspberry went off almost in my ear. Startled, I jerked back to the very edge of balance. My hands lost the wall and pinwheeled crazily for balance. I think that if one of them had hit the stone face of the building, I would have been gone. But after what seemed an eternity, gravity decided to let me return to the wall instead of sending me down to the pavement 43 stories below. 
My breath sobbed out of my lungs in a pained whistle. My legs were rubbery. The tendons at my ankles were humming like high-voltage wires. I had never felt so mortal. The man with the sickle was close enough to read over my shoulder. I twisted my neck, looked up, and there was Kressner, leaning out his bedroom window four feet above me. He was smiling, and in his right hand he held a New Year's Eve no noisemaker. Just keeping you on your toes. I didn't waste my breath. I couldn't have spoken above a croak anyway. My heart was thudding crazily in my chest. I sidled five or six feet along just in case he was thinking about leaning out and giving me a good shove. Then I stopped and closed my eyes and deep breathed until I had my act back together again. I was on the short side of the building now. On my right, only the highest towers of the city bulked above me. On the left, only the dark circle of the lake with a few pinpricks of light which floated on it. The wind whooped and moaned. The crosswind at the second corner was not so tricky, and I made it around with no trouble. And then, something bit me. I gasped and jerked. The shift of balance scared me, and I pressed tightly against the building. I was bitten again. No, not bitten, but pecked. <laughs> I looked down. There was a pigeon standing on the ledge, looking up with bright, hateful eyes. You get used to pigeons in the city. They're as common as cab drivers who can't change a ten. They don't like to fly, and they give ground grudgingly, as if the sidewalks were theirs by squatters' rights. Oh yes, you're, you're apt to find their calling cards on the hood of your car, but you never take much notice. They may be occasionally irritating, but they're interlopers in our, in our world. But I was in his, and I was nearly helpless, and he seemed to know it. He pecked my tired right ankle again, sending a bright dart of pain up my leg. Get it, I snarled at it. Get out! The pigeon only pecked me again. I was obviously in what he regarded as his home. This section of the ledge was covered with droppings, old and new. A muted cheeping from above. I cricked my neck as far back as it would go and looked up. A beak darted at my face and I almost recoiled. If I had, I might have become the city's first pigeon-induced casualty. It was Mama Pigeon protecting a bunch of baby pigeons just under the slight overhang of the roof. Too far up to peck my head, thank God. Her husband pecked me again, and now blood was flowing. I could feel it. I began to inch my way along again, hoping to scare the pigeon off the ledge. No way. Pigeons don't scare, not city pigeons anyway. If a moving van only makes them amble a little faster, a man pinned to a high ledge isn't going to upset them at all. The pigeon backpedaled as I shuffled forward, his bright eyes never leaving my face, except when the sharp beak dipped to peck my ankle. And the pain was getting more intense now. The bird was pecking at raw flesh and eating it, for all I knew. I kicked at it with my right foot. It was a weak kick, the only kind I could afford. The pigeon only fluttered its wings a bit, then returned to the attack. I, on the other hand, almost went off the side. <laughs> the pigeon pecked me again and again and again. A cold blast of wind struck me, rocking me to the limit of my balance. Pads of my fingers scraped the bland stone, and I came to rest with my left cheek pressed against the wall, breathing heavily. Kressner couldn't have conceived of worse torture if he had planned it for ten years. One peck was not so bad. Two or three were a little more. But that damn bird must have pecked me sixty times before I reached the wrought iron railing of the penthouse opposite Kressner's. Reaching that railing was like reaching the gates of heaven. My hands curled sweetly around the cold uprights and held on as if they would never let go. Peck. The pigeon was staring up at me almost smugly with its bright eyes, confident of my impotence and its own invulnerability. 
I was reminded of Kressner's expression when he ushered me out onto the balcony on the other side of the building. Gripping the iron bars more tightly, I lashed out with a hard, strong kick and caught the pigeon squarely. It emitted a wholly satisfying squawk and rose into the air, wings flapping. A few feathers, dove gray, settled back to the ledge or disappeared slowly down into the darkness, swan boating back and forth in the air. Grasping, I crawled up onto the balcony and collapsed there. Despite the cold, my body was dripping with sweat. I don't know how long I lay there recuperating. The building hid the bank clock, and I don't wear a watch. I sat up before my muscles could stiffen up on me and gingerly rolled down my sock. The right ankle was lacerated and bleeding, but the wound looked superficial. Still, I would have, ha I would have to have it taken care of if I ever got out of this. God knows what germs pigeons carry around. I thought of bandaging the raw skin, but decided not to. I might stumble on a tied bandage. Time enough later. Then I could buy $20,000 worth of bandages. I got up and looked longingly into the darkened penthouse opposite Cressner's barren, empty, unlived in. The heavy storm screen was over the store. I might have been able to break in, but that would have been forfeiting the bet, and I had more to lose than money. When I could put it off no longer, I slipped over the railing and back onto the ledge. The pigeon, a few feathers worse for wear, was standing below his mate's nest where the guano was thickest, eyeing me balefully. But I didn't think he'd bother me, not when he saw I was moving away. It was very hard to move away, much harder than it had been to leave Cressner's balcony. My mind knew I had to, but my body, particularly my ankles, was screaming that it would be folly to leave such a safe harbor. But I did leave, with Marsh's face in the darkness urging me on. I got to the second short side, baited around the corner, and shuffled slowly across the width of the building. Now that I was getting close, there was an almost ungovernable urge to hurry, to get it over with. But if I hurried, I would die. So I forced myself to go slowly. The crosswind almost got me again on the fourth corner, and I slipped around it, thanks to luck rather than skill. I rested against the building, getting my breath back. But for the first time, I knew that I was going to make it and I was going to win. My hand felt like half-frozen stakes, my ankles hurt like fire, especially the pigeon-pecked right ankle. Sweat kept trickling in my eyes, but I knew I was going to make it. Halfway down the length of the building, warm yellow light spilled out on Cressner's balcony. Far beyond, I could see the bank sign glowing like a welcome home banner. It was 10.48, but it seemed I had spent my whole life on those five inches of ledge. And God help Cressner if he tried to Welsh. <laughs> The urge to hurry was gone. I almost lingered. It was 11.09 when I put first my right hand on the wrought iron balcony railing and then my left. I hauled myself up, wriggled over the top, collapsed thankfully on the floor, and felt the cold steel muzzle of a 45 against my temple. <clears throat> I looked up and saw a goon ugly enough to stop Big Ben dead in its clockwork. He was grinning. Excellent! Cressner's voice said from within. I applaud you, Mr. Norris. He proceeded to do just that. Bring him in, Tony. Tony hauled me up and set me on my feet so abruptly that my weak ankles almost buckled. Going in, I staggered against the balcony door. Cressner was standing by the living room fireplace, sipping brandy from a goblet the size of a fishbowl. The money had been replaced in the shopping bag. It still, still stood in the middle of the burnt orange rug. I caught a glimpse of myself in a small mirror on the other side of the room. The hair was disheveled, the face pallid except for two bright spots of color on the cheeks. The eyes looked insane. 
I got only a glimpse because the next moment I was flying across the room. I hit the bass chair and fell over it, pulling it down on top of me and losing my wind. When I got some of it back, I sat up and managed, You lousy Wiltshire, you had this planned. Indeed I did. Christner said, carefully setting his brandy on the mantle. But I'm not a Welsher, Mr. Norris. Indeed, no. Just an extremely poor loser. Tony is here only to make sure you don't do anything ill-advised. He put his fingers under his chin and tittered a little. He didn't look like a poor loser. He looked more like a cat with canary feathers in its muzzle. I got up, suddenly feeling more frightened than I had on the ledge. You fixed it, I said slowly. Somehow you fixed it. Not at all. The heroin has been removed from your car. The car itself is back in the parking lot. The money is over there. You may take it and go. Fine, I said. Tony stood by the glass door to the balcony, still looking like a leftover from Halloween. The forty-five was in his hand. I walked over to the shopping bag, picked it up, and walked toward the door on my jittery ankles fully expecting to be shot down in my tracks. But when I got the door open, I began to have the same feeling that I'd had on the ledge when I rounded the fourth corner. I was going to make it. Kreshner's voice, lazy and amused, stopped me. You don't really think that old lady's room dodge fooled anyone, do you? I turned back slowly, the shopping bag in my arms. What do you mean? I told you I never Welsh, and I never do. You won three things, Mr. Norris. The money, your freedom, my wife. You have the first two. You can pick up the third at the county morgue. I stared at him, unable to move, frozen in a soundless thunderclap of shock. You didn't really think I'd let you have her? He asked me pityingly. Oh, no. The money, yes. Your freedom, yes. But not Marcia. Still, I don't Welsh. And after you've had her buried... I didn't go near him. Not then. He was for later. I walked toward Tony, who looked slightly surprised until Kressner said in a bored voice, Shoot him, please. I threw the bag of money. It hit him squarely in the gun hand, and it struck him hard. I hadn't been using my arms and wrists out there, and they're the best part of any tennis player. His bullet went into the burnt orange rug, and then I had him. His face was the toughest part of him. I yanked the gun out of his hand and hit him across the bridge of the nose with a barrel. He went down with a single weary grunt, looking like Rondo Hatton. Who? <laughs> Who the fuck, the fuck is, is Rondo, Rondo Hatton? Cressner was almost Steve, out. Steve, you crazy. <laughs> Steve, you fucking crazy. You're just making up names now. Cressner was almost out the door when I snapped a shot over his shoulder and said, Stop right there or you're dead. He thought about it and stopped. When he turned around, his cosmopolitan, world-weary act had curdled a little around the edges. It curdled a little more when he saw Tony lying on the floor, choking on his own blood. She's not dead, he said quickly. I had to salvage something, didn't I? He gave me a sick, cheese-eating grin. I'm a sucker, but I'm not that big a sucker. I'm a sucker. Fuck. I'm not that big a I sucker. I I will. I'll suck. I'll suck your. I'll suck your dick. Don't shoot me. Don't shoot me. I'll give you the big suck. <laughs> my voice sounded lifeless, dead. Why not? Marsha had been my life, and this man had put her on a slab. With a finger that trembled slightly, Cressner pointed at the money tumbled around Tony's feet. That 
he said. That's chicken feed. I can get you a hundred thousand, or five, or how about a million? All of it in Swiss bank account. How about that? How about... I'll make you a bet, I said slowly. He looked from the barrel of the gun to my face. Uh... A bet, I repeated. Not a wager, just a plain old bet. I bet you can't walk around this building on the ledge out there. His face went dead pale. For a moment, I thought he was going to faint. You, he whispered. These are the stakes, I said in my dead voice. If you make it, I'll let you go. How's that? No, he whispered. His eyes were huge, staring. Okay, I said, and cocked the pistol. No, he said, holding his hands out. No, don't. I... All right. He licked his lips. I motioned with the gun, and he preceded me out onto the balcony. You're shaking, I told him. That's going to make it harder. Two million, he said, and he couldn't get his voice above a husky whine. Two million in unmarked bills. No, I said. Not for ten million. But if you make it, you go free. I'm serious. A minute later, he was standing on the ledge. He was shorter than I. You could just see his eyes over the edge, wide and beseeching his white-knuckled hands gripping the iron rail like prison bars. Please, he whispered. Anything. You're wasting time, I said. It takes it out of the ankles. But he wouldn't move until I put the muzzle of the gun against his forehead. Then he began to shuffle to the right, moaning. I glanced up at the bank clock. It was 11.29. I didn't think he was going to make it to the first corner. He didn't want to budge at all, and when he did... He moved jerkily, taking risks with his center of gravity, his dressing gown billowing in the night. He disappeared around the corner and out of sight at 12.01, almost 40 minutes ago. I listened closely for the diminishing scream as the crosswind got him, but it didn't come. Maybe the wind had dropped. I do remember thinking the wind was on his side when I got out there. Or maybe he was just lucky. Maybe he's out on the other balcony now, quivering in a heap, afraid to go any further. But he probably knows that if I catch him there, when I break into the other penthouse, I'll shoot him down like a dog. And speaking of the other side of the building, I wonder how he likes that pigeon. Was that a scream? I don't know. It might have been the wind. It doesn't matter. The bike clock says 12.44. Pretty soon, I'll break into the other apartment and check the balcony. But right now, I'm just sitting here on Crestor's balcony with Tony's 45 in my hand. Just on the off chance that he might come around that last corner with his dressing gown billowing out behind him. Kressner said he's never Welsh on a bet. But I've been known to. <laughs> but I'm gonna shoot that but motherfucker. I'm gonna shoot that motherfucker anyway. Shoot this motherfucker. He killed my baby. Wow. Ah, so. The ledge, the ledge was the best. Okay. I, the ledge was the best. I did believe that the ledge would be your best. And after reading the little ledge preview, the little the little quarter part of uh, Battleground, yeah, I yeah, was yeah. like, I was like, yeah, this is just this is uh, foreplay. It's a little pre- need, yeah, a little precursor. This is foreplay. We need to get into the real shit. <laughs> um, I still like Strawberry Spring. Yeah. But, it's a bit too. Well. It's a bit too Stephen King for me. <laughs> That's okay. It's That's probably bit, why I like it. It's a bit too King for me. I like when kingy. he downplays his own shit or yeah. someone someone keeps his wordiness in check. 
You know, yeah. when, when someone edits his wordiness, it's it it makes it more palatable, in my opinion. Yeah. God bless his editors, um, man. They make their money for sure. Yeah, they earn I their mean, paychecks. <laughs> I mean, you have a lot of favorites of his. Like literally, the list we put together, you were like, "Oh yeah, we could read all of these." And yeah. it was it was like nine stories. Yeah. So and that's just know, night shift. And that's just night shift. <laughs> that's not even counting. How many other short stories books does he have? Skeleton Crew, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Um, and then there's like his novellas, like Four Past Midnight. Okay. Is, uh, I think that they've, is that the one where they've like literally have, all of them have been adapted into films. I think that's, I think that's Probably. Rita Harry, that's Shawshank. I think that's Apt People. I think that's, oh, okay. um, Stand By Me. Yeah. Oh, the only one that hadn't been is the breathing method, which we will look at the one time he's going to, which I don't even know how you're going to make that into a movie, but... What was the the pregnant woman in... in... Yeah, she's decapitated in a car accident, and her body stays alive to give birth to the baby. Coming to Netflix. (laughs) It's a family-friendly flick. G-rated. Mom's lost her head. (laughs) But there's a new baby in town. I, don't, I, don't, I hate it. <laughs> the breathing method. I hate it. Uh, but it's good. I mean, yeah. I like reading King. I do too. I, I like do. reading King. King has... King has quality. He does. He does. Even when he gets a, he like gets away from himself. I don't mind bit, his prose. I'm just yeah. saying there's a reason I like The Ledge more than I like... Yeah. Strawberry Spring. You know, yeah. like... When I say it's too king, I mean it's the it's the reason I don't like the stand as much as I don't as much as I like you know right his more tame stuff right but you know see I go the other way I like the you unabridged like the stand shit. even better than the shortened stand three hundred more pages of him just saying how I, Captain I, Trips spreads I couldn't do that I fucking love it dude <laughs> the I extra can't. I'll I go can't. back and read it at some point after I finish all this. Uh, <laughs> I first finish all this Mark Miller shit. Yeah, I might, I might actually go back and read some King because it's been way too long. You should. It's good. I'll, I'll give you a reading list if you like. Well, I would want to start with something that I immediately know that I'm gonna have to work through, so I might as well just start with the fucking long version of this stand. <laughs> and I've Autobridge. been meaning. I've I've said it for years. I've also been meaning to go back and read all the Dark Tower books because oh. I I. The experience I had listening to it, I think, is downplayed to how I'd feel either going through the graphic novel series or just reading it. It's, I, I, again, I love it. There's some weird shit that goes on there. Um, Name one. Okay. Uh, He writes himself into his own story. Yeah, I like that, though. (laughs) I do, I love it, but it's weird fucking shit. It is weird. Like, it's, it's just... He said, he said, you know what? Fuck it. This is a whole, like, universe within a universe, multiverse. Everything's connected to this tower. I'm going to put this young kid named Stephen King, who's just starting out, into his own story. And how much him have a heart attack when his creation that he dreamed of since he's 16 walks through the fucking door. I mean, I'm into it. I'm totally into it. I'm into <laughs> I it. I love it. I understand why some people aren't. And I also think I still kind of feel like... Dark Tower can't be perfectly adapted. Well, we'll see, because our boy Flanagan's going to try. Uh, is he? Yes, is he, though? He is. He is. Is He's he, gonna though? He's going to try. It's All his right. dream. 
It is his fucking dream. My only fear is that I'm going to be dead before it finally fucking hits. <laughs> God damn. Yeah, that's the that's the I want to see how how Martin actually ends Game of Thrones, but I'm worried yeah. that he's gonna die or I'm gonna die before right, exactly. either of those things happen. Please, like, I would like to see what his intended ending is. Yeah, yeah. Things yeah. we things we may come to, things that may come to pass. <laughs> yes. Or not. I sure hope so. Uh, this this was first episode uh, celebrating my anniversary with. Royale with cheese. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Happy to be here. Uh, We'll have you back if you had a good enough time to come back some other time, read some more shit. I had a great time. It was, it was great. It was great to finally have you on. I know that it's like a, it's like a milestone for, uh, for our friendship and for your life. I understand. It it is. I understand that which you have a high respect and authority of judgment in your life. It's understandable if in the prioritization of most important, it's like married baby podcast that one time. Right. Well, it's going to be more than one time. Which anyone, which anyone naturally would was like your first, you, you mean, maybe not your first wedding. Maybe your, maybe your most, maybe your most successful marriage. <laughs> yes. And then it's like the birth of your first child. And then naturally it's that one time that you were on lots of Hell pasta. Yeah. Or the first, I'll say the first time you first were on time, lots yeah. of pasta. Well, if you have me back, I'll be back. Oh, captain, my captain. Is there any other little things you want to end with? Anything you want to reference? Uh, Anything you want to shout out? No, I think I'm good at the moment. Um... Just, uh, you're the one who educates me on all this stuff, man. I saw Thanksgiving last week. Oh, how was it? It was actually pretty good. Yeah. It was funny. Yeah. I was laughing a lot. I, Eli makes me laugh. Well, His movies are mostly garbage, which is why I like them. <laughs> you know, it's not like Rob Zombie garbage. It's like actual, right. like, cinema garbage. Oh, we could do a know? whole other podcast on Rob Zombie garbage, but anyway. Yeah. It's a different kind of garbage, but it's fun. It's schlocky. It, it yeah. reminded me of Scream a lot. Okay. Okay, cool. And, and I like the Scream movies, you know, even the bad ones, which are yeah. all of them. Me and the oldest so, are gonna go check it out. I think it was sometime. it was fun. It was fun that like we got something that was like so specifically genre themed. Yeah, and that it was taken super fucking seriously. Yeah, that's awesome. I love yeah. it. I'm glad it wasn't disappointing. Yeah, I mean, if he goes and he does a bunch of different holidays and shit, I'll be I'll be into it because. Cause there's room, there's room to grow there. But yeah, that's that's all I wanted to say. I was, I've, I saw that. Awesome. And it was pretty neat. Pretty neat. Pretty neat. There's some fake outs too because you think you know what's coming based off of the trailer from the grindhouse. Yeah. That of course was like his proof for right. this. Sure. And then the things don't happen the way that they happen in that trailer. I so like it. it's there's a there's a different element to it. You could tell it's just a different animal. Yeah. Uh, in general. And it's fine. Go do that. But hey, uh, we have... This was like the Thanksgiving episode. This comes out after Thanksgiving. So like, hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, we got Christmas around the corner. And naturally, uh, I, I have the same person back for Christmas yeah. every year. So I hope you guys are ready for uh, this holiday season. We got a two-part story with me and none other than Frowns McBoohoo. Frowns McBoohoo. Uh, doing a doing a two part Christmas special where the first one will be out in the first two weeks of December, and then the second one will be out whenever it's Christmas, which I think Christmas is on a Monday this year. I think so. So it'll probably be out on Christmas, nice. which is 
you know, naturally how everyone is going to celebrate their Christmas. Everyone's going to get together with their families. They're going to smoke it up. They're going to get wrecked and do a bunch of shots. And then they're going to put on lots of pasta and listen to the naturally the the seasonal Christmas episode with Frowns McBooth. Only if they're doing Christmas right. I mean, only only if they're doing it right. Uh, keep listening to my show. Keep validating me. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. It keeps me going. And uh, stay spooky. <laughs>